0: Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and swallowing an ML model, than swallowing a more powerful ML model to catch it. I'm Rob Wiblin, head of research at 80,000 Hours. If you're interested in the issue of AI, I think you should listen to some of this interview and probably all of it. Fortunately, Leonard Heim is full of energy and opinions, so I think you'll find this one to feel more like pleasure than work. Access to computer chips is a key way that AI regulations could possibly be enforced in future, and understanding how hardware works as an input to research and AI applications is essential to have a picture of what's going on with AI in general. I've been learning a lot about artificial intelligence this year, as as you might have been able to tell, and towards the end of this interview, you'll hear how some of my opinions are coming together, uh, in particular regarding which risks are most serious and also which approaches for reducing them actually seem plausible to me. Lennar and I cover the pros and cons of using compute governance as a mechanism, as opposed to, say, access to algorithms or data or staff, what you might be able to accomplish by limiting access to the fastest computer chips, what institutions might need to exist for any of that to work, the impact of the export restrictions currently imposed on China, whether the existence of open source models renders compute governance ineffective, when people might be able to train a model like GPT-4 on their home computer. What protections are important to have in place by the time it's going to be possible to do that? Whether you can build governance mechanisms into the physical computer chips themselves? Whether it will become necessary to centralize compute in order for it to be possible to limit access to bad actors? Implications of machine learning for computer hacking? The use of graphics processing units and other chips specialized to just be used with AI? careers that you might pursue if you think all of this is fascinating and really urgent to straighten out, uh, and quite a few other things besides. One reminder before that though, we've put together a compilation of 11 interviews from the show on the topic of AI, including how it works, ways it could be really useful, ways it could go super wrong, and ways you and I can potentially make the former more likely than the latter. I know lots of listeners are looking for a way to get on top of exactly those issues right now. Uh, And we chose this selection of 11 aiming to pick ones that were fun to listen to, also highly informative, pretty up to date, and also to cover a wide range of themes by not having them overlap with one another too much. Of course, you could find those episodes by scrolling back into the archives of the show, but the compilation is useful because finding those episodes in the archives is kind of a hassle and it puts the interviews that would suggest you listen to front and center and puts them in the order that we think is most sensible. The full name of that feed is the 80,000 Hours Podcast on Artificial Intelligence, uh, but it should show up in any podcasting app if you search for 80,000 Hours Artificial. So if you'd like to see the 11 that we chose, just search for 80,000 Hours Artificial in the app that you're probably using at this very moment. One thing I'll add before we dive in is that Lennart is one of those rare guests who is so passionate and animated that he manages to talk even faster than I do. I don't think I can remember when last we had a, had a case like that. I know that even when the guests do talk slower than me, quite a few listeners find me talking fast makes it more difficult to follow the show, and I apologize for that. Sometimes folks ask me what speed I listen to this show at, and usually I only listen to it at 1x because I also find it hard to follow when it's spread up, so I do think the people who say that it can run a little bit fast have a good point. This episode, though, might be a particularly valuable moment to point out that most podcast apps allow you to slow down episodes to make them easier to follow. So if you're ever finding it a bit hard to to track because we're talking about something really complicated and speaking super fast and getting particularly excited, uh, you could consider slowing down the audio a little. This feature didn't used to be universal, but these days I know Spotify, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and CastBox all let you set a show to play at 80% or 90% of its full speed. And I imagine almost all of the other ones that I didn't check can do that as well. Apple Podcasts and Overcast, two of the most popular podcast apps for iPhone, let you set the speed to 75%, uh, but actually not 90%. So if 75% is actually a little bit too slow, you could consider listening to this podcast in particular on a different app, like Spotify, say. And with that little piece of practical advice out of the way, without further ado, I bring you Lennon Heim. Today, I'm speaking with Lennon Heim. Leonard is a research fellow at the Center for the Governance of AI, where he focuses on compute governance in particular. He tries to answer questions like, in what situations is compute a particularly promising nexus for AI governance? And what is a desirable compute governance system and which hardware-enabled mechanisms might support it? His background is in computer engineering, and he's also a forecaster for the U.S. government's InFER program and an advisor to the AI forecasting outfit called Epoch. Oh, how, do you, how do you pronounce that one? I would say EPOC, Epoch. Epoch, uh, Epoch, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, And he's also a consultant for the OECD's AI Policy Observatory. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Leonard. Hey, thanks for having me. I hope to talk about current compute governance proposals and their potential weaknesses. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important?
1: Yeah, so I'm working for the Center for the Governance of AI, in short, AI, So, and I'm part of their policy team, and I'm particularly focusing on what you said, compute. And my time is split on like sometimes the high-level strategic questions, like what do we need in 10, 15 years from now, if AI, advanced AI systems will be really is capable, but also think about the things, well, what are the things which we should do right now in policy to eventually go there in the near future? And I think that's particularly promising. I mean, as you have covered on the ATK podcast before, it's just there's a bunch of... Things going on with AI and like thinking about governance there seems pretty important and promising.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're going to skip a lot of the introductory uh, things that we might normally cover with the problem area today because we've done quite a few interviews about AI recently. And I expect um, even listeners who haven't listened to those episodes will probably be learning plenty in the news already. So uh, this the general topic will be quite fresh in many people's minds, I think.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think in particular AI governance. I think before yeah. a bunch of people were of the technical stuff, but I think AI governance has been recently in news. Like, yeah, all the things which are not technical, all the politics and people, stuff around it has been covered like, yeah, the last half a year, like a lot.
0: Hey, listeners, Rob here. Leonard is going to use a bunch of technical terms in this interview, uh, and I thought it might be helpful to define a whole bunch of them uh, at once here so that you uh, don't feel confused when they show up. In general, I would say don't worry too much if Leonard says some specific things you can't quite follow because they seem a little bit too technical or there's a bit of jargon in there. I didn't necessarily follow every single sentence, uh, but I think the broader points tend to come through regardless. So, so if there's any particular term you don't recognize, uh, I think just let it flow over you and, uh, and don't get too hung up about it. Okay, uh, the first things I'll define are the three big companies that are involved in, in producing computer chips that are useful for AI. There's ASML, which is this Dutch company which produces the machines that are used in factories that produce uh, those those computer chips. Then there's a company you might well have heard of called NVIDIA, which designs the chips. Basically, they figure out what ought to be on these computer chips. And then they send their schematics, the designs that they come up with, to semiconductor manufacturers, uh, the most famous of which is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, usually called TSMC, which, uh, as its name suggests, is located in Taiwan and produces a very large fraction of all of the fastest, uh, best computer chips that people use for AI training and applications. So there you've got uh, ASML, uh, NVIDIA, and TSMC. Okay, then we've got terms like compute, uh, semiconductors, graphics processing units or GPUs, and AI accelerators. These are all different terms for computer chips that can be used for training or applying machine learning algorithms. There are, there are differences between them, but often they, they don't matter that much uh, for the purposes here. So when we talk about any of those, we're talking about computer chips. Leonard also talks about compute clusters uh, a bunch of times. Compute clusters here is just when you stick together a whole bunch of computers, a whole bunch of different computer chips, so that they can operate kind of as, as one big system. Uh, the term for that, they, they just happen to call it a compute cluster or a computer cluster, or I guess actually a cloud, a cloud computing cluster. The cloud, as many of you might know from using Dropbox or Google Drive, for example, is when you basically rent space or computational ability through the internet from a large company that owns a whole lot of hardware somewhere else. That's, a, that, that's called cloud computing. Lanet also mentions TensorFlow and tensor processing units. TensorFlow was a piece of software related to machine learning that was uh, created by Google and was then used by plenty of other people because it was made open source. And tensor processing units are chips that were designed to be particularly good for our use with this TensorFlow software. But the specifics of that, again, don't matter in particular for this interview. Another thing that comes up regularly through the interview are transformers. It's not that important to know what transformers are, which is uh, just as well, because I'm sure that I would completely butcher the explanation. But suffice it to say that transformers were an improvement in the algorithms used for machine learning that enabled the kinds of uh, large language models that people are familiar with because of ChatGPT. They were an improvement to the algorithm, an improvement to to the machine learning software and the methods that we use. All right, with that out of the way, uh, let's get back to the interview. So it's, go- it's going to be compute, compute, compute today. Uh, what? How can people think
1: about compute? What, what is it exactly? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually pretty hard. I think we have not settled on a real definition yet. What I usually, when I mean compute, I mean something like computational power, computational infrastructure, and I'm referring to like the hardware, the physical products we need for developing and deploying AI systems. I think what's most common to people is the, the notion of GPUs, graphical processing units, which we at some point start leveraging for AI systems. I I like to prefer, like, use more general terms, AI accelerators, AI chips, right? Because Google, for example, has TPUs, Tensor Processing Units, which all do the same. So, like, generally talking about the the computational infrastructure which supports AI development and AI deployment... And I'm particularly thinking about, well, how can I use this as a node for AI governance to yeah, more beneficial AI outcomes? Yeah. So the unit of compute is you know the ability to, say, multiply two numbers together or something like that. Uh, and th- that's a flop, right? Or the yeah. Yeah. I think that's one way I have to think about it. Like, I mean, there are multiple units of, of compute. And like <laughs> I've been fighting recently with a bunch of newspaper where they like use flop sometimes differently than I do. So a lot of people talk about flop, which is a floating point operation, right? And then a... Basically, one operation, as you said, like you just add two numbers, you divide them, something along these lines, sometimes even like more logical operations. A is bigger than B would also be like one arithmetical operation there. A lot of people always talk about flops, flop per second, which is then the performance of a chip, right? Each chip, your phone, a GPU has a certain flop, which you can eventually crunch. How fast it's like crunching these numbers per second. Another important notion is maybe well there are differences in numbers. Sometimes the numbers are bigger, right? They're like sixty-four bit. Sometimes they're like eight bit, right? This is important because in AI we've recently seen we're pivoting towards like smaller numbers um, to this, and well, guess what? Smaller numbers we can crunch them faster. Yeah.
0: So, so, so at a basic level: if your computer is faster, it can do more calculations, and you have more compute on your laptop or on your desktop. And you know, you add more chips uh, yeah. to this server farm, you've got more
1: compute. That's right. the basic yeah. idea. I think that yeah. seems sort of roughly right.
0: I, I saw a uh, compute in the in the news this morning because I, I think overnight, uh, Nvidia's share price like went yeah. crazy <laughs> and jumped by twenty or thirty uh, percent. I think I think it grew by more than the entire total value of uh, what is it?
1: Uh, Intel. Intel. Yeah, yeah exactly. I also just saw that. Yeah, yeah, seems like compute is um, at least. Um, a good tool to make a lot of money at least right now for NVIDIA. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> yeah, I actually own a couple of NVIDIA shares. So <laughs> early yeah. to the game, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I
0: bought in in 2018, actually. Oh, wow. Um, quite yeah. early. Then- uh, so I, I thought I was like, I should put, I, you know, I, I think this AI thing is going to be a big deal. I should put my money where my mouth is. And right. it's, it's definitely done well since then. Um, ben Hilton, one of my, my colleagues, has been pointing out for a little uh, while that he expects that the price of chips is going to go up a lot. So normally the price of Mm -hmm. chips goes down because there's technological improvement, bigger economies of scale. But in as much as you have this takeoff where AI suddenly becomes much more useful and the chips are more economically valuable, you could imagine that there might be a real run up in the price. A little bit like, you know, how last year the price of gas and oil went through the roof uh, because we just couldn't increase supply uh, that quickly. is, Is this maybe the kind of thing that's driving up NVIDIA share price that people expect
1: them to be able to sell the same chips for a lot more next year than this year? I think so. I think this is probably the, the summary of it. I think it's probably wrong to think about just the price per chip. Eventually, what we care about is the price per flops, right? Like now, I, like this has been going down. Like that's the whole notion where you buy a new smartphone, buy a new computer, like for maybe for the same price or maybe a little bit more of a price, you get definitely like way more computational performance, most famously driven by Moore's law over time. Yeah, with with NVIDIA we just see like a rapid increase. Just like people are interested in AI chips, building a lot of them because it's been like one of the major drivers in AI systems, which I've definitely took a look at in the past, like figuring out what, what exactly how much has been driving this. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's push on and kind of get to the get to the core of the conversation here, which is compute governance. And uh, uh-huh. I guess the main goal we have when we're thinking about governance, I guess at the moment I mean uh, you could think about uh, compute governance from the perspective of trying to get as much of the benefit from AI as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose we normally think about it, or at least at the moment, uh, people are currently freaking out about the downsides, or at least that's what I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about. Yeah. Uh, and so, from a, like from a regulatory and governance point of view, it's natural to think about kind of risk reduction and risk management. I guess so. Personally, I've been thinking about this a lot the last few months and trying to figure out how to conceptualize it. Uh-huh. I guess currently, I divide AI threats into these three categories. The first one is misalignment where an AI model basically ends up with goals that are that are super at odds with its creators or with humanity as a whole and so it poses a threat to everyone for that reason. Second broad category is misuse and that would be where an AI model actually is doing something that it's being asked to do. It's doing something that its creators or at least its operators are intending but from your or my point of view or perhaps the view of society as a whole uh, the impacts that that has are, are undesirable. Mm-hmm. And then there's this third category which I guess I think, I think it's gotten less attention, at least until recently. And also, I'm not sure what, the, what what name we should give to it. But basically, there's this effect that if we start building it, like if, if AI has become very smart, they become very capable across a wide range of tasks, and we have enough uh, compute out there for them to be doing an awful lot of thinking, uh, basically doing an awful lot of mental work, then effectively, we've had this big population increase on the earth. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole, there might be a whole lot more science and technology going on. Uh, and the, uh, because AI is able to act so quickly, you might expect that a whole lot of stuff that previously took months like might and how happen in weeks or days. Mm-hmm. You kind of get this thing where history as a whole speeds up in terms of calendar time, more stuff gets crammed into each year than there was before and because history is pretty volatile if you start cramming a century's worth of like wars and uh-huh. I don't know like technological advances and breakthroughs and all of this sort of thing into a single year uh, <laughs> things could go things could go either very well or very badly very very quickly so there's this kind of speeding up history element yeah. uh, I'm not sure whether, whether you have a name for this or
1: whether it's something um, you think about but. <laughs> I, I used to at some point give a talk where I was just saying there was a line going up and when a line goes exponentially up this is generally like a sign of just like gosh we yeah. should really think about this right um, even if even if it's something good going up, like, oh, it generally requires careful management. Maybe, maybe one way how to think about just, like, calling it, like, term of structural risks. Mm. How does AI shape our incentives, our institutions, but also the other way around, right? And if you just talk about, like, well, we just do, like, 10 years of labor within one year, mm. this changes, like, everything, right? This changes our institutions and our labor, and, like, clearly our systems are not adapted to this. And there's some kind of structural risk, right? That doesn't necessarily need to be bad, but in general, like, yeah, if things happen fast, and yeah. um uncontrollable it definitely requires careful management. Yeah. I guess it creates particular risks because you would expect some things to speed up
0: more than others. So it might be that yeah. our legislative processes don't speed up 10x right. but but a whole lot of
1: like science and technology
0: can speed up 10x. And Indeed. So things get a bit out of whack a yeah. relative to or like what we're military using.
1: stuff yeah. or like national competition like all these kinds of things can just like definitely yeah change a lot and this yeah. this requires
0: management. I guess as I understand your work it's primarily focused on misuse. Is 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 that a correct impression?
1: Um, I think I would not say so. I think like i usually don 't take this angle i 'm just like i 'm trying to work on air governance i 'm trying to make sure we can make better, more sane decisions about AI development and AI deployment. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no particular thing where i 'm like oh it 's only about misuse and misalignment. If you now just take like, this really blunt tool i 'm just trying to take chips away from someone mm-hmm. well, sure, like I make sure they don 't misuse it right, but maybe I also have reasons to believe these players are more likely to like, have misaligned systems because they take safety not as serious right mm-hmm. and in our way it 's just like if i 'm just taking it away from someone. It's, it also helps with this whole speeding up history. To some degree, I'm like just slowing it down or like I'm giving it to them in a more responsible or like agreed manner. was like, oh yeah, you, you can have these chips, but like, can we please take care of careful management there? So like I tend to be agnostic about which part of the problems, maybe certain policy proposals focus more on the one or the other. There is nothing recently where I was like, oh, it mostly helps with that. I think it's mostly always across the dimensions with maybe a particular portfolio, which is more skewed.
0: Okay. So it's, so it's relevant to all three, I, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. I guess when, when people are, you know, uh, you know, every day now, you might be hearing new ideas that people are batting around mm-hmm. uh, on social media, in the newspaper, you know, in the policy scene for different uh, AI governance proposals and compute governance proposals specifically. W- what is kind of a, the, the first test that you apply to them in your mind? Did, did you uh, have something like, you know, would this proposal like in the next few years, like accomplish X or Y? Uh, is there anything like that?
1: I'm, I'm thinking a lot about advanced AI systems, right? What are like, the impacts we see in the future? What about like, future systems which are even more capable there? So I think a bunch of times I think about policies, like do they actually help with this or do they just like, address maybe current problems you're already having, which seems great, um, but is there some ways how I can build on top of this? Can I imagine just like, oh, this is a tiered system in the future and I can like, scale it up. I have like, this knob which I can slowly turn up if like, these AI systems become more careful. So like, I just love the whole idea of like, foresight, Right? Like, also just buying some flexibility into the future so you can maybe adjust these policies, which is like a high ask for a bunch of policies to have. And other questions which run from my mind is something like yeah, like, how feasible is this? Do I think people will buy into this? Which actors does it uh, affect? How, how stringent is this idea? And maybe also how it can be combined with other proposals. I think most of the times it's like, I have a bunch of ideas in my head. It's like, oh, cool. How does this feed into my idea? Are there like nice synergies? Do they actually fight with each other? Those are probably the first reactions there. And of course, like when I would then sit down, I would like think more carefully about it and have like a framework there. Not saying I necessarily have a framework for all of these policies to eventually do it. I think most of our work is mostly focused on policy research. I'm not the civil servant who eventually is implementing it. But of course, this is most of a back and forth in the conversation you then have and you would figure out the details. Yeah. So, there'll be people who,
0: who might be thinking about compute governance from the perspective of we might, you know, we're going to get GPT 5 next year mm-hmm. and people might use that for a bunch of bad stuff. How, how do we address that? It sounds like you're interested in that, but you're primarily concerned with what are we going to do in five or 10 years when these systems are like much more capable, like much more capable yeah. than what uh, GPT 5 will be like
1: next year. I do think GPT-5 will be probably pretty capable of just like say this is like this hypothetical system which is like coming out in two years but I think this already requires careful management ideally we'd already do something there and if it would not apply something which applies to GPT-5 so would it probably apply to GPT-8 in the future right so it seems to, seems to be a good thing to do there um, I think we've just got to be careful like what is eventually warranted and what do we actually get done right I think like definitely world is more buying into like all these kinds of like risks but not to the degree where like for example if we talk about compute it's somewhat of a blunt tool and it's not usually a way how we usually regulate stuff. So I think we got to be careful there, how we first go there. I think the meme which I'm currently trying to push mostly is this whole notion of like, compute is an interest in governance, not for AI. It enables certain governance probabilities. Please be aware of this. We can chuck it into certain proposals. It's not self-sufficient. You always need to like add it to other stuff.
0: Yeah. Okay. So on that topic, I suppose if you were trying to do regulation or govern- governance in order to improve um, the impacts that AI has... There's very different kind of actors who you might focus on. So you could think about AI model operators or perhaps the people who are training them or, of course, hardware manufacturers as well. And probably there, there are others we can think about. And in terms of productive inputs to the advancement and training of cutting-edge AI models, mm-hmm. I think it's typically broken down into the, what's it called, the, the triad. There's like classic triad of yeah, data yeah. and compute and algorithms. Indeed. And I, I get. Wouldn't, shouldn't there also kind of be a fourth one, which is talent? So, uh-huh. you know, being able to hire people to make use of these things? Uh, or, or do people think of like talent kind of
1: goes into the ability to create these yeah. other three things? Yeah. So if you have talent, it's not a triad anymore. So, you know, oh, like yeah. we don't have this nice term. My argument is mostly talent is like a secondary input to all of these. Talent helps you for algorithm, talent helps you for data, talent eventually helps you for compute. I think, and again, algorithm, data and compute, they also like, they go with each other. More data usually means you need more compute. But yeah. I think like it's a nice way to to think about this. Like another way... Um, how I would describe it a lot of times, so like the AI production function. The AI production function says inputs that, for you, you just described, and out we get a model, right? Like a trained ML algorithm which has certain capabilities. Yeah, and then it seems like if we can govern inputs, we can like govern the production of these AI models, and this might be like a desirable thing.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a whole lot of different angles you could take on this. What what are kind of the unique strengths of compute in in terms of in terms of governance? What uh, why would you think about governing compute in particular rather than something else?
1: Yeah, many arguments for that. Maybe maybe let's start with just like describing algorithms and data. Um, with algorithms, we would describe like the techniques, the underlying math, like for all of these systems, right? On a really high level, this is machine learning. These are neural networks. On a lower level, we like think about like specific techniques, how you train these systems, maybe new activation functions, maybe also just ideas like the transformers, like changes feel a lot, right? Which, like, which is driving current progress. Those are algorithms which are underlying all of these. Eventually, this is just computer code, which is on your computer, right? Then we have data, because we t- mostly talk about ML systems. We have data where we train these systems on, which then like the system sees the data. says so like, yep, this is good, this is bad. And based on this, you get feedback, and then you train the system over time. And over time, we just like accumulate way mo- a lot of data, right? We talk about terabytes of data to train these systems. And depending on the model you train, it's either text, it's images, it's videos, anything along these lines. And what both of these have in common, particular algorithms, is just like, they are sitting on your computer, and I can literally press commando C, commando V, and I duplicated it. And, like, I can just steal it to somebody. With data, it's a bit more complicated because it's just a lot, right? But if you now compare this to compute, we actually talk about a physical product there. And this just makes everything, like, significantly, like, yeah, more governable and more interesting. So... We describe this as a uh, feature of, eventually, excludability. There's, like, some way how you can exclude people from using compute. Excluding people from using algorithms and data is significantly harder. And compute has this nice property, like, you need it physically. And also, if you run a certain algorithm on your computer, and your computer is, like, using all of its flops, right, then nobody else can use them. There's a limited amount of floating-point operations per second we can execute right now in the world just gives me some idea of what's going on there, right? I can make no estimate. Like, if somebody tells me this system has that many flops, I'm like, no, no way. Like, th- we could have not trained this this long. In particular, if you talk about exponential progress there and exponential growth there. Yeah, so this excludability is, like, a really nice feature uh, on compute.
0: Okay, yeah. Are there any other key strengths that there are or benefits from, from targeting compute?
1: Yeah, I think the quantifiability, which, like, somewhat adds up to some of these notions. But if you just, like, try to quantify algorithms, this is really, really hard, right? Just having a hard time saying, well, this algorithm is way better than this, There are, like, some ways how to measure it, but, like, it's really hard to make, like, yeah, good research there and to, like, say um, what's been happening over time. In particular, if you see it, like, if you just imagine the invention of the transformer, well, that's a huge algorithmic progress to something you could say there's a discontinuity. It's really hard to eventually measure this and then also just to see it coming because eventually algorithms are just ideas. Same with data. With data, we at least can say, well, it's 700 gigabytes of data. But there's a huge difference between a Wikipedia text and a book and, like, training on Reddit just regarding the quality. So with data, we have this huge problem regarding quantifiability. it's so multidimensional. There's like so many metrics across you can measure it. Like even with high quality data, there's like no agreed upon metric. What exactly is high quality, right? You can sometimes see in papers, it's like, oh, it looks like they trained for two rounds on Wikipedia data because Wikipedia data is like pretty good high quality data, right? And you would probably not do the same with Reddit or they even try to exclude 4chan because this is like the last thing you eventually want your system to be trained on. And compute then has this quantifiable feature literally saying like this is how many chips you got if i know how many chips you have i have some idea what's your theoretical maximum amount of aggregated flops right how fast you can eventually crunch these numbers and this thing gives me also just an idea of the, your capabilities and which actors eventually matter so i can just literally count the chips i can count how many flops you have and yeah to some degree it's just like easier quantifiable it's like a bit more one-dimensional right just also the flops is like simplifying it a bit but i think it's definitely true compared to data and algorithms to like claim computers more quantifiable
0: yeah makes sense I guess an extra issue with with data is, you know, even if someone doesn't steal the data that was used to train GPT-4 from OpenAI, other people can scrape data off the internet as well. So, yeah. you know, other people can download all of Wikipedia. Uh, so, yeah, it's extremely hard to exclude people from that. Indeed. Uh, yeah. yeah. I thought that you might raise the, the benefit that relative to algorithms and certainly the data... The chip industry is mm-hmm. incredibly concentrated, uh, yeah. as I understand it. I recently read this book, uh, Chip Wars, uh, oh, which gave go. me yeah. a bit, bit more of an insight into yeah, how, how, this, how this industry operates and, yeah. and a bit of its history. But there's almost like only one company that makes most of the machines that we use to make these most advanced chips uh, called ASML, which happens to be based in the, the Netherlands. Yeah. Basically, everyone else gave up uh, on trying to compete with them. Which, which is amazing, and this uh, what is it? you know there's Nvidia, uh-huh. there's the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation uh, TSMC, TSMC uh, and I guess I guess there's a couple of couple of other actors, AMD, uh, right? There's like, many
1: more actors, some meta them some meta less, yeah, yeah, yeah. but. We're talking about not a
0: large number of companies, and they're very geographically concentrated. So, in particular, I guess uh, in Europe and the US and Taiwan, and, and maybe maybe a handful of other, I guess Japan, possibly. There's I think some...
1: usually people say the US, Japan, the Netherlands, and Taiwan, and then you at least have most of the cutting edge chips. Yeah, yeah. but it's supposed to, yeah. So if you want to, if you want to govern something uh, and it's a global issue, uh,
0: you'd rather just have to deal with four countries and a handful of companies Indeed. rather than a hundred countries and a yeah. hundred different
1: companies. So, so that's one benefit of uh, going down the compute route. Indeed, yeah. What I covered before of excludability and quantifiability is like what I sometimes describe as like fundamental features. And whereas the semiconductor supply chain is something some like a state of affairs. It's nice that the world turned out to be this way, right? Like this could theoretically change. I think it's like not that feasible that it will change anytime soon. Because we just talk, in my opinion, about the most complex product which humankind has ever created. Like these chips, it's just like insane what we've created there. And just like whole society is not run on this. Yeah. To bring a bit more structure on what you just said, it's like, There's like a three-step process how to think about this. There's the design process where you design a chip on a high level architectural-wise. What are like, how to actually add these numbers, right? This is where Nvidia's famous for and like, who just like stock rise, just like (laughs) (laughs) race, did go up a lot. Um, Nvidia's been doing this historically, but they don't produce these chips. This is like a trend we've seen like within the last decades. Emergence, like, like a lot of design companies, also like Apple, they just don't produce the chips anymore. They go to so-called fabs. And one example there is TSMC, who's like the leading developer for cutting edge chips. I think they have 90% of the market share of all cutting edge chips. Other important players there are Samsung and Intel as well. Intel being a famous example which worked across AllSec. Like they did the design, they did the fabrication and they did the last step which is the packaging, right? The packaging, we have like another third-party actor sometimes TSMC is doing it. It depends exactly what you do but like we go from the design then you go to the fab which produces the chips then you go to the packaging so like taking these wafers with a bunch of chips making one chip out of it and then basically NVIDIA gets a chip back and can eventually sell it and there's like yeah, it's full of choke points, if you want to describe it this way. And like there are like some countries, particularly if we just care about cutting edge chips, like the smaller, the chips of the smallest transistors, which have the highest performance. There's like, yeah, ASML, the only one which producing the machines which go to TSMC and Samsung, which producing then the cutting edge machines. So basically, whatever ASML does, whoever ASML chips to, they have the ability to produce these chips. Yep. Um, others simply do not. Yeah,
0: I could definitely recommend reading the the book Chip was if people are interested to understand how it is mental. What is inside these chips? And it's insane, the manufacturing process, the number of technological hurdles that have had to be overcome in order to make things this small and to manufacture them at scale. I, I guess the current phase is what, ultra-high wavelength, uh, ultraviolet light that they're, that they're using? and EOB. Okay, and it took like many, many years of r and D. I think in particular from ASML, but by other groups as well. From ASML
1: of, betting on this, I was making strategic investment to ASML betting on this. The Japanese have tried it and eventually failed. To do this, They're just like wasted billions, like trying to develop this. And ASML just then succeeded and now has this market. Yeah. And they, yeah, they're having a pretty good time. So, yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Uh, and, and so this
0: is the kind of te- new wave of technology that is coming online now. I guess there might be future evolutions that are also pushed forward. But I'm actually not sure what, what the next wave is going to be in three or five or, or seven years time.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's lots of small tweaking and other stuff going on there, right? So, like, yeah. the general trend where everybody talks about Moore's law, transistors are getting smaller. This is what we're trying to enable there. But it become like, way more hybrid right now. And there's, like, some roadmaps where they have, like, some ideas this is going to happen within the next 10 years, right? Like, these UV machines are operating right now. They probably produced a chip, which is, like, sitting in our laptops on your smartphones, which people are using to, to listen to this. And, yeah. Then, then, like, of course, they're thinking about, like, what's going to be next? They're making next developments. Like, there's this whole notion of just, like, there's a great paper, ideas getting harder to find. And they have this case example of the semiconductor manufacturing industry where we just see, like, where we need to for exponentially more money to keep this exponential law eventually working. And this is what we've just seen. So it will stop at some point i think the literal definition of moore's law will definitely stop for sure but eventually what i care about is the computation performance and like there were like other tricks so you can still continue doing this like 3d stacking in memory computing a bunch of other things on the horizon there which are more like not completely new technologies but like hybrid technologies which still rely on this like really complicated process of building semiconductors yeah
0: what are the weaknesses of trying to trying to target
1: compute as opposed to, to other inputs yeah, I think we now just mostly talk about compute. We didn't talk about AI, right? So like, right. like my, like <laughs> I'm true. doing AI governance. I'm doing com- like so, okay. Sometimes like, if to be honest, like. Yeah, maybe we should maybe call it AI compute governance. or so maybe this is the wrong term. I like to sometimes, oh, we talk about data center AI compute governance to make it even more targeted. So I just, we just made the claim, well, is governable due to the features we just discussed and the claim which builds on top of like is underneath this one. is like, well, by governing computer, I can govern AI systems. Why is this the case? We've seen that AI systems used exponentially more compute over time to being trained, doubling every six months. This is ridiculous. This just means, like, this is faster than Moose law, and Moose law is already pretty fast, right? When we talk about speeding up history, (laughs) this is is part of what's happening there. So it looks like... All things being equal, systems trained with more compute are more capable systems, have more capabilities. Famously described in the empirical observation called scaling laws, where we just see see these kinds of observations. And this means more compute means more capable systems. i like, cool, if I can govern compute, I can govern the most capable systems to some degree, right? I can give it to people. I can take it away from people. I can distribute it accordingly. So that's the case where I think we can govern AI. What are now the cases against this? Well... I just said computers important for AI. If this stops being true, if tomorrow somebody has like a new magic source, a new algorithmic efficiency innovation, the Transformer 2.0, and everybody can train GPT-4 on a smartphone, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm having a hard time eventually like governing the systems because it's just like widespread. Hey listeners, uh,
0: Rob here. Just thought I'd dive in and offer another, another definition. Another technical term that comes up that actually is important is uh, scaling laws. So this one, I think we've explained on a couple of previous episodes, and they're uh, really important, so so I'll uh, just uh, just explain what they are again. Basically, scaling laws are this observation that people have made over uh, many years, over the last 10 years, I guess, of improvements in AI, that if you increase the inputs to an AI model, to, to the training of an AI model by some amount, then you tend to get a consistent improvement in the performance of that model. So people have noted, for example, that if you double the amount of data that is used to to train a model, then you might get a consistent 10% reduction in the error rate, say. Similarly, if you double the amount of compute that is involved in training uh, a chess playing algorithm, then you might get a consistent 5% improvement in its quality of play. So the name for these empirical observations that you get kind of consistent improvement in performance for a consistent percentage increase in the inputs that go into training a model, those are called scaling laws. And conveniently, if those scaling laws continue to hold, then that allows you to predict the performance of AI models some years in the future, because we have some idea about what additional amount of compute might be available, what additional amount of data that there might be. And so by projecting forward these these past improvements that have been quite consistent over time, uh, we can guess where things might be in 2025 or 2026.
1: Right now it's the case there's like probably less than 10 data centers in the world who are able to train these kinds of system who have like that many chips you eventually need to go about this. So that seems pretty important, right? Just like this whole notion compute is not only an input to the system; you will always need it, no doubt. But the question is like how much do you need or from which concentrated manner do you need it?
0: Right. So a weakness here is or a possible future weakness would be if you no longer need very much compute in order to to, to do these uh, things that we're potentially worried about. Yeah. Then uh, it just becomes a lot harder to to get much traction, um, limiting people's access uh, this this way. I guess. Oh, I suppose another weakness. Um, maybe not relative to, to other things, but you know, we, need, we need access to chips for other functions, for things that don't have anything to do with AI. Yeah. So we need them on our laptops, we need them on our phones. Yeah. Uh, pe- people have data centers doing other kinds of work that we don't regard as dangerous. So because it has these multiple different functions, uh, in order to govern AI via compute, you might need to govern all compute, and that is going to accidentally have this bycatch of a whole lot of other uh, industries that might be quite irritated
1: that they're being interfered with. Yeah. That's like a really common pushback and I think that's absolutely right right If I'm just claiming like oh we're governing all the compute and it's like no way like it's everywhere like it's sitting in your light bulb if it's like has like internet of things features or something and as I just said before computers like somewhat of a blunt tool because it's like this untargeted to some degree lucky us we live like in a world where it's like a tiny bit better at least we have specialized processes for AI and we don't have like necessarily only processes which are AI like we started with graphic uh, graphics processing units GPUs which were used for gaming Turns out they're also really, really good for AI systems. But now, over the last years, we've pivoted a bit more. Where like we added certain features to GPUs. I think it's not even fair to call them GPUs anymore. We still all do it, but like it's more, its an AI accelerator which has like certain features, in particular, like really good at processing tensors. This is different from the CPU you have in your smartphone. But your smartphone also has a small GPU. But compared to the chips which I talk about, which are mostly chips sitting in data centers, which have like the biggest capabilities, running on 500 watts. Your smartphone could not support us. So you need active cooling for these kinds of things. So actually the, the, the regulatory target of computers is like way more niche than most people think. I'm talking about probably less than 1% of all chips, probably even smaller, right? If wow. we like talk about this, like nobody cares about like your AI chips on your smartphone. Right, you saying one percent of chips, like counting the
0: chips, or one percent of all compute that exists in
1: the world. No, yeah, it's probably more of the compute yeah. eventually because they're just like significantly faster. But like, n- like not all computers equal. <laughs> yeah, me- me- measured by kilograms of chips or something. But me- yeah. Maybe that's it, and just like measured by like highly parallelizable compute. I say, of course, and just like faster. Um, there's like, yeah, people should look up CPUs versus GPUs. What the main difference is there, but the one thing can just like do the same thing really fast and parallel a lot of times. Your CPU is way more flexible, right? Yeah. That's the general notion you have to you have. This whole spectrum from the most specialized chips, which are also the most efficient, they can literally do one thing. An example is like, media encoding processors in your TV or Bitcoin mining. They have like specialized right. processors and all day do is like Bitcoin mining and then you move across the spectrum to GPUs. They're like, they're like a bit more flexible but they're not as flexible as the CPU. CPU couldn't do literally everything but like it has some cost given this flexibility, right? I mean, we, we observe this all around the world and yeah. we talk about like this more spit specialized of compute here which uses a lot of energy which we talk about like there are like orders of magnitude faster than the chips in your smartphone. Like nobody's training AI systems on your smartphone. We talk about the Chips, which eventually train these systems.
0: Yeah, let's just pause and, and explain this issue of chip specialization for particular functions, because I think it's mm-hmm. quite it's, it's like important here, and it's probably going to be important in future interviews that we do as well. So it's worth uh, me being clear on what's going on, and, and listeners as well. But maybe I'll just explain my kind of yeah. rough understanding of it, and you can tell me where I'm wrong. So. I guess I think of CPUs, the kind of thing that you have in your laptop or your or your phone, as being like the maximally general kind of uh, compute uh, processing thing. It kind of, it's like not particularly good at any particular kinds of computational operations, but it does all of them roughly equally well. And then you can you know, change the chip design in order to make it like particularly strong at one particular kind of calculation. Uh, but then it will, uh, on the other hand, be worse at other kinds of calculations. And people started doing this, I guess, long ago for gaming purposes with these graphics processor units or or, or GPUs where they figured out that, well, actually, if all you want to do is just render a video game, you kind of own the, you, there's a particular kind of calculations that you're doing constantly and other ones that never come up, more or less. So we're going to design a chip that is just really good at doing the, uh, you know, figuring out the shading on an object yeah. based on different levels of light. Uh, it's going to be particularly good at doing that exact operation and, other, and not other things. Mm-hmm. And then I guess you get a big boost of something like maybe 10 to 100 times efficiency uh, for, for the That's things it. that it's most specialized on. Yeah. yeah. Now, at some point, people figured out that, wait, actually, the calculations that we're doing in training ML models are kind of similar, like remarkably similar to the thing that we're doing when we're trying to render a video game. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should just use GPUs. uh, And so that gave them a boost. And then they said, we can do even better than that. We can specialize these chips even more to be particularly good at exactly the kinds of mathematical operations that are constantly happening when you're training ML models and I think this led to, uh, again, a 10 to 100 times improvement over these maximally general CPUs that people might have been using before. One extra thing is that you run out of juice here. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you do get you get this 10 to 100x boost in efficiency, uh, but then you can't do that again because mm-hmm. the chip has already been specialized onto the thing that you want. And so to some extent, we've already done this. Uh, mm-hmm. Or like now ML models are trained on specialized chips. And so we won't expect to get this kind of leap forward again. But it the fact that, these chips that are specialized on training ML models are so much more efficient in terms mm-hmm. of like uh, you know energy efficiency, say, mm-hmm. or you know, weight efficiency, even, at doing this one thing versus everything else means that you can kind of get most of the way there just by governing these chips that are specialized on training ML models because all of the rest of the chips in the world that are aimed at doing more general tasks or just different kinds of calculations couldn't really be used that well, uh, couldn't really be used that efficiently to train uh, ML models, certainly not the cutting edge ones anyway.
1: Is this right? Yeah. There's maybe some some nuances, which I, of course, always add, as a computer engineer. Yeah. Um, I think you're pointing to the right thing where we talk about orders of magnitude difference between these chips and what they're good at. And this just helps a lot, right? So you basically, to overcome this difference, you need 100 times more chips. Well, that's, like, really, really hard to eventually accomplish. And a lot of times the difference is, like, even bigger because you become more specialized.
0: Let's talk about the most visible piece of existing compute governance, or at least the almost the one thing that, I, that, that I'm that i aware of. So I think, yeah, many people will have heard that last year, the US imposed export controls on the, the best chips, uh, but by, by some measure mm-hmm. uh, on on their export to Russia, because uh, of Ukraine, and, and also also China. In the latter case, I think it was explicitly designed basically to hobble their AI, AI and tech industries. Um, I suppose probably because uh, they would have said it was because they were worried about military applications, uh, I think. But Trying to cut off another major country from this entire era of technology is a pretty big step. It's it's not something that uh, I can recall the U.S. doing doing uh, doing that recently. Given that you know that China and U.S. aren't in overt conflict in any way, and as I understand it, you know the Netherlands is going along with it, given that they're the they're the home of um, ASML, and Taiwan is is going along with it, uh, and then they would have to go along with it, mm-hmm. given that they're the, the home of TSMC. So it's being enforced by a whole lot of different parties, uh, reasonably intensely. Is there much more to say about um, these particular export restrictions than, than what I've just said there?
1: L- lots of things to say about it. Um, where do we even start? I think what's important to note is, like, yeah, those are the famous October 7 controls, right? Let's put them in two camps. One of the camps is like making sure China is not being able to build their own sovereign semiconductor supply chain. The other part is what you were just talking about, is the AI chips. There is no big success if you cut off the access to AI chips if they can just build their own chips. So eventually you want to do both in the same time. They previously... Let's put it this way: SML was previously not allowed to send their machines to China because they were asking for an export, for an export license from the Dutch government, and for some reason they really never got a, you know, like working this and approving it. I see. Um, and now we have like these official rules with like the Netherlands. I'm not sure if joining is the right term. The same with Japan. They like roughly did the same rules, but they're not saying, oh, this this has not a lot to do with this, but like, of course, they're, like somewhat somewhat correlated. This also part due to the US, just like. The U.S. might not supply the SML machines, and the U.S. might not have TSMC, but the U.S. is supplying the software and maybe the the lasers for the SML machines. So they have like some ways of like, hey, guys, please follow these rules. Otherwise, we're going to tell our U.S. companies and our U.S. personal. There's like some weird way how the U.S. export controls can have like, how they can leverage their power. Well, not exporting the stuff to you anymore so you rather join like you follow these rules by not exporting these types of equipment to china so they use all these kinds of rules to eventually enforce this because also what you want to have is that tsmc is not allowed to produce chips for china which are like under the certain thresholds there so that's like the whole thing about the semiconductor manufacturing equipment where you're just really trying to make sure China's not build, being able to build down seven a sovereign semiconductor supply chain for cutting edge chips we're talking about chips which use euv machines which is like yeah the most advanced chips, if we just talked about,
0: yeah. As I understand it, these rules have effectively prevented China from being able to manufacture these most cutting-edge chips anytime soon because they are just so—it's so difficult yeah. uh, to to do. It's the most difficult manufacturing thing that humanity has ever done, more or less. And in as much as they're cut off from all of the intermediate inputs, you know, even if they. Uh, can get access to, uh, you know, the internal documents that mm-hmm. might describe on paper how, yeah. in principle, uh, you would do this. The technical challenges to actually doing it
1: are very, very high. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a whole history of them trying to get access to this, right? If you just like, I watch a great a, documentary about the SMN and it was like, we just double our budget for security, like every year, because they're just so worried about just like IP theft. And like, there are like famous cases where like China eventually did steal IP and yeah, taking them to court didn't really work, right? So it looks like even IP is not sufficient there, right? Like, you eventually need this whole tacit knowledge. When you buy a machine from SM, having a machine is one thing. You just get your whole team of engineers who's going to live in your fabrication unit there and make sure this machine runs. This is, like, a big part of it. So, like, even stealing a machine, you still need to be able to be operated. And there's, like, only a handful of people eventually can do this. And, yeah, this tacit knowledge, like, here we're talking about the input like, called talent, is really, really important there for your SML and for everybody who tries to build the chips, in particular for TSMC.
0: Yeah. I was going to say earlier that fab is short for fabricator, which is, ba- is
1: basically uh, a chip factory. Indeed, of... yeah. Or like fabrication unit or something. Like I think, yeah, that's like somewhat the term. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, if you want to be cool and in with the compute people, yeah, you got to, got to, got to call them Fab. Then,
0: then you go with the fabs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, is there anything else you want to say about what uh, was the underlying motivation for these export controls, given that they're reasonably unprecedented?
1: Um, I mean, people can read the document from the US government. They explicitly say China tries to be a world leader in AI by 2030. They've been using AI systems for human rights violations, most famously with um, computer vision algorithms um, with the Uyghurs in, in China. And this is part of the motivation, how they just like explicitly target these AI chips, right? Like talking explicitly about China's goal of being a leading actor in AI and they're like explicitly worried about human rights abuse with it and military usage about AI systems. So yeah, the US is kind of clear about this, that this is motivation there. Do you think these export controls were a good move, all things considered? I feel more certain about cutting off the access to producing sovereign chips. So like having these kinds of interdependence and we like all come together and talk about what we actually produce seems good. Cutting off the access to, to the chips, I think, is like more debated. Um, I think all things being equal, I feel positive about it that they eventually did it. I think there needs to be some tweaks so we can make them better to eventually achieve their desired goal. And like actually enforcing them is like another big question there. But I think if we have some type of like, yeah, dampening race dynamics, I think it's like a really good thing to achieving this. It's unfortunate that this is the way of going about it. I would like rather have like some kind of treaties where we just like all come together and like, yeah, um, decide on these kinds of things. But yeah, given that, I think this just like reduces the AI governance problems to like less actors and makes it less certain that, for example, China's not leading the AI race. You see it right now a lot of times where people talk about slowing down AI, AI regulations and the people bring up the continent like, but China. It's becomes so much just like, yeah, <laughs> like a typical response, but I, China. I, right? I, oh, yeah. I, I've started having the same kind of almost mocking response like, yeah. but China, but China. Yeah, In, indeed. Sorry. And I think yeah. these kinds of rules would help you, which is like, but China is now, it's less certain, right, that they eventually get this. And I think these rules are a really big deal and could potentially have a tremendous impact there on the whole production of AI within China, if yeah. they are like enforced correctly, and again, some tweaks to be done with there's like some caveats, if if they cover everything right now. So if, let's say that uh,
0: GPT-4 is the most impressive uh, ML model that exists currently, uh, potentially, yeah. why, you know, uh, China does have plenty of compute. Uh, maybe it doesn't have these very, you know, latest cutting edge chips, but there's still plenty of computers and plenty of, uh, what do you call them? Like, Supercomputers, I, I yeah. guess, I guess in China. Why can't they just train GPT-4 on those older chips by leaving it running
1: for a bit longer? Yeah, yeah. Um, they still have access to the older chips. I don't think right now the controls like uh, like cut off access to systems right now The export the, the controls get like exponentially more effective over time for two reasons because we exponentially grow the number of compute and chips get exponentially more better right So how could you overcome it? Well you're just like next year if chips are twice as good, you get two times the. Before. Well, it's just hard. At some point, you need like 16 times the same chips. Like, it's really, really hard just like building these types of clusters. And then it's not only, well, chips get better, but we also scale systems, right? The reason why we have bigger and bigger systems is because we build bigger and bigger clusters. So while everybody is like doubling the size of their cluster anyways, they need to double the size of their cluster because systems are getting bigger and they need to double the size of the clusters because chips are getting uh, eventually bigger. So like they mostly have an impact in the future. I don't think they cut it right now. In particular, when we talk about these controls, which I think is really interesting, I think a bunch of people get wrong, like, which chips are we are talking about there? First, people think it's about chips which go into tanks or rockets. No, those are not the chips which go into tanks or rockets. You don't do this. Your battery would be like, yeah, you will run out of power immediately, basically. These chips in the tanks and rockets are closer to one in your washing machine. Like, it's, it's not that sophisticated what you eventually do there. It's different if you, like, trying to calculate the trajectory of, like, a missile or something. Then you do it on supercomputers and maybe the chips are closer we're talking about the chips which are used in data centers for AI trainings, right? And how did the US try to find the chips? Because they need to write some kind of law, which like defines the chips. They said, like, well, we define this by chips which have a certain performance, computation performance. They have that many flops per second, and they have a certain interconnect bandwidth. So, how fast can chips talk to each other? And this is a distinct feature of chips within data centers because we need a lot of chips that are like, really fast at talking to each other. And this rule is currently sitting at 600 gigabyte per second. So, this basically cuts off access to the A100, which is like NVIDIA's chip from two years ago, and to NVIDIA's most you know, recent chips, the H100, which are you now like selling, like, yeah, <laughs> never before. What did NVIDIA do? Well, NVIDIA reacted promptly. is like, OK, cool. Um, we're just going to reduce our interconnect bandwidth. So we keep our performance the same, but we reduce the interconnect bandwidth to like 400 gigabyte per second, so below the threshold, so we can continue selling it. Now, the big question is like, well, they don't have access to the same chip in the US but they have the same computation performance, a little bit worse interconnect bandwidth. So the question is like, how big eventually is the penalty now for training these kinds of systems? My current belief says, well, this is not sufficient. We talk about a penalty from 10, maybe 30% if you're really lucky for building cutting edge AI systems. And if you see current AI systems and if you believe AI systems is really important, well, you're willing to eventually pay this, right? To pay this penalty of like ten to thirty percent, and I think this is part of the, part of yeah, where the U.S. basically needs to adjust their threshold there to like cover more chips and like reduce the interconnect threshold, maybe in further. So you have like eventually a penalty which just hurts more, right? And maybe this should be ten x or even more.
0: Yeah. So uh, I've heard from others that these export controls were a significant blow to ML research in in, in China, and that China is meaningfully behind, and also that it seems to be falling further behind. Because as you're explaining, these restrictions become more of a problem uh, over over time, more or less, that uh, the longer they're in operation, and I guess possibly they could bring down the threshold for what uh, restrictions there are uh, in order to make it more serious. And I guess especially as the cutting edge ones that other countries have access to just keep getting better and better, uh, then... then, uh, having had these export controls in place for longer so basically the the chips that are left in china just get left in 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 the dust more or less is that broadly right like the amount of compute that the best or that the the largest ml model in china has been trained on will probably fall progressively behind the Mm -hmm. largest the amount of compute that's been used for a model in the us
1: yeah i don't think this is the case right now with the current rules for the simple reason you can still continue pushing computational performance of chips into infinity the only the thing you need to make sure of as an exporter right now is you don't have more than 600 gigabyte okay. per second interconnect. There are many reasons to believe that computation performance is just like way more important than interconnect speed.
0: So why are the rules just about the interconnect speed?
1: The thing they're trying to solve there is like if you would just make it about the whole computation performance, you would just hit a lot of chips. Ah. You would hit gaming GPUs. Okay. People are probably not excited about this. And you would hit in the future because the whole idea about this will to you keep them where they are right now. Five years from now, you're going to hit a MacBook. Right. right. And then you have like a bunch of yes companies not being excited about this anymore. And then I'm also targeting what I'm actually not trying supposed to be targeting, right? right? Yeah. So what I've been trying to think about there is like we're not worried about chips. What we eventually worried about is a bunch of chips together. We're worried about supercomputers because that's what you need for AI systems. The problem is with single chips, well, you can just hook them all up, right? So I need to make it about the chips so you don't get a supercomputer. There are actually also rules where they forbid the export of certain supercomputers. And I think it's actually defined by flops per square meter. Like just one way how to think about this. But again, like various different ways I can evade it, right? And you just make it a bit further apart or something. (laughs) But what we eventually just just need there is we need some way how we can just like only target supercomputers without targeting consumer devices. I think this is like an open question, how we eventually trying to achieve this. So you want some kind of feature which enables chips from being hooked up. Like a chip should not be a part of another 10,000 chips. That's worrisome. If a chip is just part of another 100 chips, I don't care. This is not the workloads we eventually worried about. Those are not the things which then are going to be training these AI systems. But this whole notion about it's about supercomputers. It's not about chips. We just have a really hard time designing these kinds of things, right? And this is then where like, people like me and others are trying to think about this, where you just need technical experts, but also people who know what the problem is, right? You're literally talking about, like, you need to think about the chip specifications, And then the last step is, like, China going to be an AI world leader, right? You just got to go all the steps below, like, oh, what does it mean? What is the penalty? How bad is this? How is this going in the future? And if you read news about, like, China not being able to catch up or something, I think a lot of times China's progress is overblown anyways. And I think that's independent of the current export controls. Why they are doing this? I think there's like lots of science right now that China probably is going to regulating really, really hard these kinds of systems. And like if their current proposals are going to be implemented, that's just going to be like take a big hit to the industry and how they're going to be doing it just because they need to censor that much, right? There's like you cannot just simply deploy a model because it might say bad things about the CCP um, and they're not too excited about it. I guess being
0: more generous, you might say the government there is more cautious in general about... The kind of chaos that uh, technological advances might might create, uh, like maybe they're taking a more prudent approach, yeah. I admit, like, perhaps for bad reasons. Uh, yeah. but but in some sense, uh, they're following a more precautionary uh, approach, and I suppose that I mean that's great from our point of view because it means that we don't feel this need to to, to race in order to remain competitive. Uh, and as much as China is willing to slow things down, just because they think that that's the more prudent point of view. I guess, either being generous from the perspective of the Chinese people mm-hmm. or being less generous from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party, yeah. then then we can afford to take our time as well.
1: Indeed, yeah. It just seems important. Like It's like it, a lot of it depends just like what people believe. It seems like this is like a lot of times sort of consensus, particularly right now in the US, where it's just like this, like, yeah. This angle is like, well, they're trying to become a an superpower. And I think the other thing to look out for is like, well, they're regulating industry. What they do internally within the army or within the AGI labs might be different. This might not follow these rules, right? So maybe their deployed systems are heavily regulated, but something which is happening in the background is actually not the case, right? I see. And this there might be another favor for like these type of export controls. Yeah, that makes sense. One, one thing I don't quite understand is, a chip on a
0: phone, you really need it to be very small to have a lot mm-hmm. of transistors in a tiny amount of space and to use very little power. But if you're running a supercomputer, you don't really care about the physical footprint that much. You can you can stick it out of town, you can stick it in a basement, you can spread it out. So why if you're trying to create a lot of compute in order to train these models, uh, why do you need the transistors to be so small? Why can't you just make them bigger but just make A hell of a lot of them. Mm,
1: Yeah. So smaller transistors are just more energy efficient. So basically, if we go back, basically the the flop per watt, right, goes down over time. And just like energy costs are just a big part of the cost. It just like this enables you to just like eventually go cheaper. And you cannot just like make these chips go faster because you produce less heat. Cooling is a big thing when we talk about chips. The reason why your smartphone is like running not that fast, is just like, well, it's only passively cooled, right? And this, this, like, yeah, eventually takes a big hit to the performance there. And another thing to think about there is, well, when we then have all of these chips and we want to hook them up, it just matters how long the cables are. We're not talking about, like, hooking something up to, like, I don't know, like, do your home internet connection one gigabit or something. We're talking about just, like, we want high interconnect bandwidth. We want high bandwidth zones. We literally want these things as close as possible to each other. And they're just limits to, like, how long you can run these cables. This is part of the reason why people are really interested in, like, optical fiber. Because, well, yeah, you don't have that much loss over longer cables, right? But then you have like oh, all of these other notions, like well, you need to turn like, you need to turn the optical signal into an electrical signal, just like it's an ongoing research in mind, okay. but people are definitely interested in this, just like building a bigger footprint there. Because then you also have like less heat per area. Like this this whole notion about data centers, like really important to think about, also from a governance angle. I think that's like a big topic yeah. in the future. People yeah, should think carefully about this and see what we can do there. And also just how we can detect it. It's like, if we talk about advanced AI systems, we're not talking about your GP at home. We're talking about supercomputers. We're talking about facilities, like AI production labs, whatever you want to call them. And there's like lots to learn there. Yeah.
0: Before we push on from this, all things considered, is the US in a geopolitical strategic race with China to develop AI
1: right now in practice? Or at least is it, is it, is it at all competitive? is it i guess it's like a personal opinion or something like i'm definitely not an expert who speaks on this right i've been basically directed to this whole china thing because it was about chips i was not thinking about like china and us like that much before and like i'm definitely not a china expert on any of this but i can just say the perceived notion is right it just comes up in testimonies and other stuff and like even from the labs themselves where they're just saying like but china so if it actually is it's a different question it's like what is the perceived notion and what does it enable for my policy and if the people believe they're in a race this changes the policies I do right, and we should be really be careful about believing if we're in a race or not
0: yeah yeah I'm planning to interview some other people about this about this question in particular my, my impression is that people are more concerned about there being a race with China uh, the less they know, which makes me a little bit suspicious that uh, in reality this may not be a competitive uh, race at the moment in practice and in fact there's more breathing room than, uh, mm-hmm. than than amateurs might might suspect
1: yeah I think it would be wrong to say if we Solve the race with China, the AGI problem or the AI governance problem is solved. This is definitely wrong. I think one of the reasons just to do it is just like, well, actually, if we, if people believe there's like, we're not on the race with them, then eventually also others just can slow down. We can't come together as the world. And I think ideally this would be an interest where we just all come together and it's like, hey, cool, this seems like a really big deal. We should all go coordinated yeah. about this.
0: So, okay, for, for the rest of this interview, I'm, I'm going to assume that we think that the AI models are going to be trained in the next 10 years, maybe, maybe the next three years, uh, that could be used to do a lot of harm to, to humanity or, or at least to individuals if they were operated by the wrong people and asked to do things that uh, that, that we would wish these models weren't, weren't doing. So basically that it's this kind of powerful strategic technology with harmful applications if that's right, then we don't want anyone to be able to operate these most powerful ML models as soon as they're trained, uh, and maybe we don't want those models to be trained at all, uh, either, given that they might inevitably uh, proliferate, uh, and we might, in particular, really want to prevent some groups like terrorists or North Korea and probably some other people we can stick on the list from accessing this technology for a long time. You know, maybe ideally ever. Are you happy with that kind of those kind of assumptions going in? Is that, is, that, is that a useful setup? Um,
1: well, it's, it's a pretty big ask, right? If, if we just talk about like these kinds of setup, but I'm like, yeah, I think that's like a useful way how to think about it. I think there's sometimes like sometimes a way how to just like test your policies. Would they eventually help with this? If this is eventually going to be the case in the future? That's a different question. But thinking about it, and if you have like some governance regime, which can address this seems right, but it must be a pretty st- stringent one, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so let's do a section now on basically current proposals that people are making for possible uh, regulations and governance systems for for compute. What's an example of a proposal or mechanism that yeah that, that has been put forward to to achieve those those kinds of goals? Well
1: I could not say like this chip export controls so are like a current proposal, yeah. right now, think pretty big deal, it's out there. So compute governance is happening. I used yeah. to say it's happening without a lot of knowledge. This seems bad. We should really think about this. And clearly governments and others are like licking um, experts on these kinds of topics to make this better. Other proposals which have been put forward, I think, is using compute as this type of monitoring or knowledge. Um, So what a lot of people talk about is like a threshold. So as you just said, maybe you don't even want to train certain systems because just the existence in itself is like, dangerous because it might proliferate somebody might steal it you might even if you believe in AI takeover scenarios that during a training run AI is starting to do you know bribe some people and like trying to take over the world or something along these lines so you might not even ever want to train a system and with this compute threshold you could basically maybe agree it's like oh here's the threshold you're not going to train a system which is bigger than x right this might be useful because if I know this compute threshold I can roughly say like oh cool you roughly need 5,000 chips for six months to train a system like this. And I'm just going to try to monitor whoever wants 5,000 chips for six months this long. We're like, we're definitely going to check what you're going to be doing there and maybe not even allow it, right? So this requires like some oversight from these types of compute providers. Most families cloud providers are so like them providing this compute. They definitely have this insight after somebody trained the system because that's how you get built, right? They ask you like, how many chips you use for how much time? So they know this for sure right now. They don't know exactly what you did. they just like, oh, yeah, used a bunch of GPUs for whatever. You could have trained 10 small systems, one big system, or even just deploy a system. I think that's part of the problem we're having right now. You don't have these insights, what exactly is happening. But as an upper bound, I can say, that's as much compute you got. So this might be the biggest systems you've developed. And if you never have enough computer across the threshold, I'm like, so I'm like, yeah, seems fine. Seems like you have not done like, really, something really care- uh, dangerous there. I see. Okay, so a so, uh, simple structure here
0: would be there's some threshold of compute above which we're concerned about what, what the consequences would be of a training run that large. We want to identify anyone who has that many chips concentrated in one place, or I suppose yeah. anyone who's renting out uh, chips up to, that, up to that scale. And then maybe they would need a license or approval in order
1: to, uh, to do any training runs that are, that, that are larger than that, basically. Indeed. The, the whole idea of licenses, I think, is like, really important here. There are two types of license we could imagine there. If, if I'm telling somebody, well, you're not allowed to train a system above X, I cannot make it about the model. The model never exists. So right? So I need to have a license about the developer, about the company. right? It's like, oh, do you have your AI driver's license with you? Like, are you actually a responsible AI developer? Like, oh, you are. You're allowed to train such a system. This would be the first thing you could imagine. Like, If you train above compute threshold X we're making about this. Another thing you could imagine is like a license about the model. So maybe you've trained a system and it's above this threshold, so we classify it as potentially dangerous. So we want to make sure this model has a license before you deploy it. And this is then where the whole notion of like evaluations, evals uh, come in, where people try to test these models for like danger properties we eventually worried about. And if we're not worried about it, the model gets its license, its stamp of approval, and then you can deploy it, right? And again, there, compute could also complain in because usually people deploy the systems at cloud providers. It's just the cheapest way. It's just the economy of scale how we deploy them. And maybe you want to tell them, hey, you're only allowed to deploy systems which have a license, right? Always are not allowed to deploy them. This would be reckless if you would do so. Um it's like a way how like compute first of all helps you to monitor, to decide this threshold, like compute indexing, I think is one way to describe it. And then later compute is also like just an enforcement tool. It's like your model does not have a license. So hey, sorry, we're not we're not gonna run this one. Yeah. How would this be enforced?
0: Do you think it would be it would be practical to be able to restrain people from aggregating this amount of compute before
1: they do it? Um, open question. Let's put it this way. Um, I think what makes me positive there is we're talking about ordering more than a thousand of chips for a couple of months. It's like less than a hundred actors, probably less than 30 actors in the world who are like doing this, right? We have training runs where we talk about they cost within a single digit millions here. And is it then possible to enforce this I think eventually we just, like, maybe started voluntary. And I think a bunch of AIGI labs would eventually sign up to this because they have, like, currently they show some interest in, like, hey, we want to be responsible. Here's a good way of doing it. And one way of enforcing it, just, like, via the cloud providers, Right. And then I don't need to talk to all the AGI labs. I only need to talk to all the compute providers. I want to some degree a registry of everybody who has more than 5,000 chips sitting somewhere and then knowing who's using a lot of these chips and maybe for what. You could imagine this in the beginning maybe being voluntary, maybe later than for us being by these cloud providers. But of course, many open questions regarding how you eventually enforce this, in particular getting this insights right? Whole cloud providers are built around the notion that they don't know what you're doing on their compute. That's the reason why, for example, Netflix is not having their own data centers. They're using it from Amazon from Amazon Web Services, even though Amazon with Amazon Prime is a direct competitor. But they're just like, yeah, we can just do this because you, you don't have any insights into this workload anyways because we believe in encryption, right? And Amazon's like, yeah, seems good. We, like, we have this economy of scale. Please use our compute. Um, same with Apple. They just use a bunch of data centers from Amazon and others even though they're in direct competition with them. So there's like little insight there. The only insight you eventually have is like how many chips for how many hours because that's how you build them. And I think this already gets you like a long way.
0: How big an issue would it be that, you know, if, if the U.S. puts in place rules like this, you'd just go overseas and train your and train your model somewhere else?
1: Yeah. But maybe the export controls could just, like, make sure that these chips never go overseas or don't only don't go in countries where we don't trust that people will force this. This is another way how we can think about it. Just, like, maybe the chips only go to, like, allies of the U.S. where they eventually also can enforce these controls, right? And then U.S. can enforce this, particularly with all of the allies within the semiconductor supply chain, to just make sure, like, well, we have these new rules. How are we going to use AGI chips, uh, AI chips, responsible? And you, you only get the chips if you follow these rules. That's one way of going about it. No wise the chips are not going to go there.
0: Yeah. Okay, so, so this, this proposal is is out there. People are talking about it. Uh, it it's being, I, I guess, contemplated by AI companies and by, by people in politics and, and, and think tank folks like you. What, what's the reaction
1: been? Direction has to something we've been like recently in testimony from Sim Altman explicitly said a compute threshold might be something you might want to implement like we're going to run certain evals, and you need licenses for deploying models above a certain compute threshold maybe even a capability threshold but like we're having a hard time directly saying which capabilities are dangerous or not. So I think people are talking about it if it eventually gets implemented it's a different question otherwise my reaction on computers a lot of times it's already happening but it's happening to China, it's like a way to enforce these kinds of rules. It's like a really blunt tool. And it's a lot of times how you would like actually enforce something domestically. It's like a weird way of regulating. In particular, if you think about like having asked before you even train a system, you you must really believe like, oh, just the existence of a system itself is dangerous. Whereas I think most folks are just like, well, yeah, just don't deploy it, right? Just don't run it. And it's way easier to make statements about the dangers once you have a system, right? I'm talking about the dangers of having (laughs) 10 to the power of 25 flops. Whereas like, it sounds dangerous to me by now because I've just have this mental model like, oh, this is this model and has this capabilities or something, right? But uh, I think it's quite a stretch to say that just like everybody's going to be buying this. It's like way more evident if you actually think about these systems. So uh,
0: I know there's been a, uh, I mean, Silicon Valley is a big place where people have lots of different opinions, but mm-hmm. I think some people have been having a negative reaction to a lot of the discussion of AI regulation from, I guess, a uh, freedom of use uh, point of view, mm-hmm. uh, a sense that there's a, like, a maybe... Basically, there's going to be regulatory capture where particular AI companies will be able to lock in their advantage by yeah. regulating the industry so much that it's very hard for any small firm to, to, get, to get started. Mm-hmm. I suppose some people also just have a kind of general anti-regulation attitude within within business. And so some folks like that might look at this and just have a negative instinctive reaction. Uh, yeah, have you, have you been tracking that as well?
1: Um, so, I mean, yeah, me mostly think about the compute things It's like a bunch of people have directions where they're just like worried about their GPUs. I think they have been already floating some memes around. Um, with like GPUs on flags, and which says come and take it or something. And my response is like, I'm, I'm not worried about your single GPU, even your 10, even your hundreds, or maybe even your thousands. I'm like starting to just like talk about supercomputers where we like talk about more than 5,000 GPUs. Maybe that's like roughly the threshold there. So definitely the reaction is like, well, leave my computer alone. Everybody has computers. Like, no, but actually I'm just only talking about centralized AI, data center compute, specialized compute, which is used for AI. And I think this already helps a lot there. Um, this definitely comes at a cost, right? I think what most people sign up to and what I think is definitely a good idea is just like regulating frontier AI systems, regulating these companies. And this is just only a handful. Those are like the leading systems which you need to uh, to go about there. In particular, there's just like not that many companies who train systems which are this big because just like you just have this immense capital cost to just train these systems. And and it looks like at least OpenAI and others are actually going out there and saying, like, please, <laughs> regulate us. Let's think about something domestically, ideally also internationally. And it just seems like that computer is one of the better tools out there. I think I would have never claimed it's a silver bullet, but it's maybe one of the better ones, in particular when we talk about this technology. It comes at some cost. It comes at some, yeah, <laughs> needs to, to implement it and costs and thinking and new institutions we need there. I wonder if yeah. uh, there, could, there could be value in rebranding all of
0: this as not compute regulation, but supercomputer regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, like I was saying, people are worried about having their, yeah. uh, like even small firms or small awesome. AI companies yeah. might be worried about, worried about this, but but in reality, they're probably not going to be covered. And, you know, even an AI startup that's trying to do I don't know, sort of medical advice or some mm-hmm. specialized uh, AI function, it's very unlikely that they would in the near future be training a model with more compute than GPT-4. Indeed, and not So, prob- so they probably wouldn't be covered.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think. Yeah, cool. Then I'm doing supercomputer governance now. It's over. No computer governance. <laughs> maybe. Maybe that's the future. No, I think that's also why I'm just saying like the, this notion. Like it's not about chips, it's about the aggregation of chips, right? Um, and like using computer as a node where like you have to be more specific there. It's the same when people would say I do data governance or something like we're not talking about all the data. We're just like trying to use how can you use it in a more safe, responsible measures? How can I use this tool? It's it's not only about taking it away from people. I think it's a lot of times mostly about monitoring, seeing what's going on and having verifiable commitments. I think this is just like what technology eventually allows you to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. L- later on, I'm going to talk about, I, I, I guess the there's this underlying problem that if today we need supercomputer regulation because of improvements in algorithms and the, you know the uh, technological progress in in chips, gradually it's going to over time shrink from needing computer uh, supercomputer regulation to just needing like large you know um, <laughs> middle-sized computer regulation, and then and then one day maybe uh, to, to laptop regulation, mm-hmm. which might strike people either as unacceptable or uh, unviable. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that question. Um, but, but at least in, in, in the immediate term, we can think about it in terms of supercomputer regulation, which does seem a lot more so. practical.
1: Yeah, I think this is the thing we're talking about within the next years.
0: Yeah. Okay, so this is one broad category of, of regulation. Is there another strategy or another general type of compute regulation that,
1: that people are talking about? Yeah, another notion which I've been trying to discover is we talked a lot about regulating training ones. But I'm just mostly trying to get the idea. It's like, well, computers are not for AI governance. And I think we already see it uh, to some degree, like where sometimes computers is getting used just for law enforcement. If you would imagine, I'm going to start like a website online where I'm t- starting to sell drugs. I would run it via the Tor Network or a different way. At some point, somebody wants to just turn it off, right? Because, well, they want to send me angry letters. They want to get me a lawyer, but they really don't find me. So they're just used turning off. The data center is literally pulling the plug as a last resort, Right. And I think that's, like, an important component to understand that, that, like, sometimes just, like, this is, like, one way on just making sure somebody's actually off if it produces harm, right? You can just think about, like, this drug market is producing harm over time, so the earlier you turn it off, the better it is, right? And, and I, I described it like we maybe want, like, some kind of, like, oversight over deployment of AI systems. I think a notion which a lot of people get wrong, they mostly think about compute as, well, it's only about training, which is roughly right. You need the most, the majority of compute or like a lot of compute for training a system like in a small time frame. But if you look at the, all the AI compute usage in the world, the majority is used for inference, right? Because every single time you do a Google search, every single time now people are like chatting with ChatGPT, it's running on these AI systems. So the majority of computers currently used for AI inference. Hey listeners, uh, Rob here with another quick definition to, to help you out. One term that I picked
0: up from this interview that I wasn't in the habit of using before is inference. So when we talk about a machine learning system, you know, a piece of AI software, let's imagine, say, let's say a machine learning algorithm that plays chess. It has to go through this training process where the neural network is created and the weights that make up that network are chosen or they're they're evolved gradually over time in response to how it's performing as those weights are gradually changed. Now, that's, that's the training process. But then once you've got that neural network, once it's been trained, then when you apply it to a specific case, let's say you're you're you're, you're playing against this uh, this chess software, and it's using it that neural network to figure out what move to play against you, that is called inference. So that's when you kind of that, that that's an application of the of the neural network that you've trained. All
1: right, back to the interview. And this can also be governed. We can use this in a more responsible manner, right? And maybe the thing you want to make sure of there is like that cloud providers and compute providers who have the majority of all our inference compute are using this in a responsible manner. For example, as you just said, like, well, you need a license before you deploy a system. But maybe another way you have to think about it is just like, um, if one system, an AI system does harm, right? For example, it runs a big media disinformation campaign. I want law enforcement to have like a direct line to the cloud providers. Like, hey, guys, please turn this off. Like, this is just immediate way how you can turn it off. And that cloud providers, for example, check, well, who was running a system? Who was actually my customer there, right? So you have, like, some know your customer regime, which they maybe should implement to then enable this. So, like, with know your customer regimes, you can get this training ideas, but you can also just get this deployment oversight ideas, which I would describe there, where you just make sure, like, if you deploy AI systems, you want to do this in a more responsible manner. and, And it's just like this, this node where you can go if nothing else works, right? Your angry lawyer letters don't work. You can just pull the plug. Maybe that's a good resort and maybe a good way to think about this. And just, like, in general for cloud providers getting is like, you're part of this game, you're responsible. General idea which we're trying to get out there is like, we just talked about more compute means more capabilities for AI systems. What we're saying, cool, more capabilities also means more responsibility. So whoever has more compute, you just bear like more responsibility to making sure these systems are deployed are in a safe and secure manner. I see. So the earlier broad category was
0: preventing people from doing training runs that involve very large amounts of compute and I guess denying access to large amounts of compute to bad actors or at least uh, actors you don't have confidence Mm -hmm. in. This is the other end of the spectrum where something has already been trained and deployed that it turns out is having harmful effects and basically, we want to respond very quickly. We don't yeah. want to be stuck in a many months long legal Indeed. wrangling or even maybe like many hours long like detective uh, run because these things could spiral out of control extremely fast. Basically, uh, I mean, so this isn't going to help with the misaligned superintelligence intelligence scenario. It's not going to be outsmarted by someone pulling the plug because it was going to see that coming and mm-hmm. uh, n- not... Have any visible misbehavior until uh, that will no longer work. However, if you just have uh, a model that's being misused, so uh, you know, if you have a model that's not super intelligent, or maybe it's having harmful effects almost unintentionally uh, because it's been given wrong instructions, it's like spazzing out more or less. Then you want to detect that very quickly, turn off the uh, like basically cut the electricity to the place where where it is before uh, things can get out of control. Okay. And, and so the thing is here, I guess, is creating legal authority to, to intervene and turn things off very aggressively and making sure that there is a process that will actually cause that to happen um, very fast. So you don't end up with a very extended set of phone calls before
1: anything can be done at all. Indeed. And just like being aware of it, they're just like sometimes like, oh, this AI is like coming from the cl-. literally the cloud, just like it's coming from above. Oh, no, no, we'll talk about physical locations where this is happening. I think this is particularly interesting because you can basically claim capabilities of AI systems get better over time when people learn how to use it. I think that's roughly true with ChatGPT. ChatGPT is now more powerful than it used to be, not because of I changed something, because people learned how to use it. People hooked it up with a bunch of other open source tools and now has like this closed loops and you can do a bunch of other things. Or like recently, this browsing plugins where like the system is now able to look up stuff on the internet. So it could be the case that over time, people develop more capabilities, more functions we didn't see before. And now it's like, damn, we didn't see this coming before. Now it's time to eventually pull it back. And right now, OpenAI has this authority to do this. And one way, how they're just enable to do this, while well, they're not releasing the model, they're going to release an API to do it, right? So they can turn it off every single time or they can still patch it. But if we talk about other systems, which are eventually employed as cloud providers, in particular, if one of the people want to do it in a cost-efficient way, this would be one way just like have this direct line to just then go about it there and just make sure the system is being stopped running and you stop harm from being created. Yeah. Has there been a reaction to to this idea? Um not really have not okay. pushed a lot. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Uh, but are, are you the only one talking about this? Surely there's other people who have raised this as a broad mechanism. Um I think more people are talking about it. It's like really hard to just like see what's been happening in the last six months, but just have like this whole notion of like computer center for year governance got way more attention. And I think initially it got a lot of attention around like Chinese export controls, but I think no more broadly with like yeah, the CEOs themselves or like other prominent figures saying like, hey, This is actually like a really promising enforcement node and monitoring node, which we can then use. And I just expect there to be just like, yeah, way more progress and way more people diving into this and and thinking about this more clearly. What I think is still lacking is just like technical knowledge there and how to think about this. I think a lot of times people have just like wrong conceptions about like what you can actually know, and what you can't know. And like where you need more technical features and where you don't need technical features. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you want to say a little bit more about maybe the strengths and weaknesses of this broad
1: approach? I think where I changed my mind over time, I thought about like compute governance. Just like people always said, compute governance regimes like this self-sufficient thing, which is gonna solve the whole AI governance problem. And I think over time, it's like, nah. Actually, compute has like mostly, yeah, like free features. I think we couldn't describe them as it can enable you to get knowledge. Which actors have chips? What are the capabilities? Where are them? What are they doing with them? This is like roughly what can, can compute give you. Compute can also enable you to enable distribution. It's like, oh. You do pretty good things. Like maybe you want to boost certain actors, right? I think right now we see in the US and UK a lot of initiatives around giving academics more compute because something like, well, this is actually good. We need some not necessarily a competitor, but some counterpart to the big corporations there. So like you can distribute compute. Sure, you can give it to people, but you can also just like give it away from less cautious actors, right? If they don't have the AI driver's license or something. And the last part is just enforcement. Which is described like literally taking it away or just like not giving people access at all, not even exporting chips there. So just like three rough ways so you can think about compute. And I think this is not self-sufficient. None of this. A lot of times it's just like, well, I can set a compute indexing threshold and then we do X. But what is X? This is then where just like all the other people are coming in. And I think this is definitely where I changed my model of time. It's like, well, it plugs in. It's like a tool. It's a tool for AI governance which people can use either for enforcement, for monitoring, for distribution, something along these lines. So like, I think I work way more together with other people. And a lot of times it's just like, Leonard, here's a proposal. Can you just like, See, like, I have this gap and this gap. Are there, like, any technical things you can think about this? And the technical things a lot of times are just about just, like, making it easier. Building trust, for example, can also be used there, right? If you just have, like, a nicely defined quantifiable metric compared to a bunch of other things which just are way harder to define. Okay, let's push on and talk about this other broad
0: category of governance approaches, which is building particular mechanisms into the chips themselves, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what what this is called. Maybe you can explain in a second. But the basic idea here is that we could try to govern compute by setting up the compute chips with rules about what they could and couldn't be used for uh, under, under different conditions. And you could imagine, for example, that TSMC chips could be used for normal computing processes without restriction, but that they would have something on them, uh, to, uh, some fir- firmware that would detect if they're being used to train ML models. And potentially, they'd shut themselves down and prevent that from continuing unless they had some unlock code uh, approving the training run from TSMC or some government agency or, or whatever. And again, I think another possibility in this vein that I've heard is that chips might be able to maintain a tamper-proof record of what they've been used for in, in the past. And that then potentially inspectors could go around, uh, you know, looking at concentrations of compute and seeing if any, uh, you know, unauthorized ML training runs uh, had been occurring there. I guess, first up, are these things possible? <laughs> are they probably possible or are they impossible? <laughs> they sound a little bit magical to me.
1: Yeah. Um, well, yeah, computers are magic, right? So <laughs> no, technically true. we can do a bunch of stuff. The question is like, is it, I think most of them are both, know, so is it secure? Yeah. I think we, we, we converge towards calling this term like hardware enabled mechanisms. Why, why is it interesting to talk about hardware-enabled mechanisms? Well, we can leverage the concentration of the supply chain. If we just like, tell NVIDIA or TSMC to like, implement this, we cover the majority of all compute. That's a huge win. Another reason why hardware is interesting, it's like sometimes there are like, some reasons to believe it's more secure than software if implemented correctly. It's like, a bit harder to tamper with this. And maybe, maybe let me start with just like, saying where, like, we already see this in the real world. Like, there are already examples out there. Um, most prominent example is, like, I think probably every second person is using an iPhone. An iPhone has, like, some hardware-enabled mechanism which just makes sure it's only running iOS. You cannot run anything else on the system. We have a history of people trying to do this, so-called jailbreaks, but they've become probably exponentially harder to do, um, to run, like, other systems. So, like, right now on your iPhone, you can only run software, which Apple approves. First, you run iOS, and then there's an App Store. You cannot just simply download any random app and you can run it on your smartphone, right? Apple goes through each app, puts it on an app store, and then you can run it. Of course they say this is all a security feature. It is, it enables better security, but it's like just another feature, just like, well, they take 30% cut of like every app cell. And there's like another way of achieving this. So I think there it's already happening. Another example maybe with iPhones is just like where it's like pretty half-enabled. IPhones have this face ID and touch ID to make sure you unload your phone, right? And what sometimes happens, well, the screen breaks and you want to replace Face ID and Touch ID and people have been having a problem. If you replace this component, you cannot get a replacement part. It does not work with it. The simple reason is that these Face ID and Touch ID are like uniquely bound to each phone. And they also do this because of security, so you cannot snoop the connection. So it's like you can only use this and only Apple can approve this. They have like some magic key lying around to just enable you to have like another Touch ID and Face ID. And this might also be an interesting feature to think about like where you can just like... Not simply take a chip and put it elsewhere. It's like, no, no, no. It's like bound to this. Like these two things only work together there. So these these hardware-enabled mechanisms are already happening. Maybe the most annoying example is (laughs) HP recently did it. When you use ink, which is not from HP you cannot use this printer anymore. Like, it, it's, I don't know. Like, it just you turns try. itself off forever. Is yeah, that it? I think like literally they just change for forever. It's not even just like you cannot use other ink. Just like there's just like this thing is just completely disabled I recently <laughs> it. It's like, wow, that's like, that's quite a <laughs> that deep is move, a nuclear bu- right?
0: option, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, but I think it points to the things like, well, technically this is possible. I feel pretty confident if some smart hackers would get together, they could enable this ink thing again. It's just not that interesting, right? Like, I don't know, people just probably buy a new cheaper and pe- like, I stopped buying HP printers because it's just like so annoying. Yeah. I mean this is a good, this is completely irrelevant but it is it
0: is amazing to me that the printer uh, industry is so stuck on the model and has been for decades where the printer is very cheap maybe they're even selling it almost below cost price and then they charge you a hell of a lot for the ink. Yeah. Why don't they just do what almost everyone else does which is sell the printer for you know the cost plus 20% and yeah. then so you the ink for cost plus 20% yeah. i i just I, I don't know there must have, i'm sure i'm <laughs> sure there's
1: i'm sure we could google this and find out but anyway it's just fascinating that this is the length that they have to go commitment to commitment problem i don't know call to action everybody commit to <laughs> yeah <laughs> buying these types of printers so we can eventually solve this okay yeah um <laughs> So I thought I thought the other category of hardware-enabled
0: mechanisms that I'd heard of was I think during the crypto boom a few years ago, mm-hmm. Nvidia was it or TSMC or someone it's Nvidia. A- yeah. Nvidia. Okay. So their chips were being used for crypto mining, uh-huh. uh, which uh, tragically made it very difficult for gamers to get yeah. access to these to these graphics cards. And so I think they put some mechanism on the chips to make it impossible to use them for they would they would prevent themselves mm-hmm. from being used for crypto mining, in order I guess to please their. Uh, uh, they their gamer customers or just I don't know maybe even people running supercomputers I, I don't know but and I think this this actually worked for a while but then eventually people figured out how to jailbreak it for yeah. some period of time and then they could use it for crypto mining again that's is a really it,
1: interesting example so what NVIDIA did there is just like I think they called it light hash rate LHR and and I think it's like well, we, I think we can wonder why, why NVIDIA did it, because eventually just the, the crypto mines were just paying more for the GPUs and the gamers couldn't get it, right? Yeah. From a purely financial point of view, this was like definitely not the best move that NVIDIA did. I think I would rather understand it as, and maybe they proved themselves right, as NVIDIA were like, Ugh, we, we don't want to disappoint our gamers, we want to keep these customers and we don't want to bet on the crypto community. This is like actually not our core community, only, only some part. They want to steer them towards like certain products to use it. And in this case, this was particularly concerned about Ethereum. Most other cryptocurrencies already moved, if we go now back to our spectrum of AI chips, they already moved to ASICs because they're more specialized. You exactly know what you're going to crunch on Amazon. Whereas Ethereum had this interesting move. They did not want ASICs to happen. So they developed an algorithm which was really memory intense. So basically, Ethereum was always looking for the gaming GPU with the best memory bandwidth. And that's also NVIDIA. It's not about the flops here. They don't care. It's just only about the memory bandwidth where you can read this. And NVIDIA was like, yeah, as we just said, for some reason, not excited about it and trying to make sure this is not happening. So they implemented some mechanisms where they could detect Ethereum mining. And this me- mechanism worked really well because you know exactly what they're doing. You just You don't know the exact right. numbers, but you know the exact algorithm they're crunching. And they just knew, oh, this memory access pattern is unique to Ethereum. So we're just gonna throttle this one and implement it in the firmware. As you said, eventually this got jailbreaked. It's not really clear how hard it was, because Nvidia at some point released by accident a firmware which disabled this and then tried to roll it back. But as we know, sorry, point, sorry. was it was it hacked or did they they just accidentally published it? They accidentally published it.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. um, they accidentally published it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh boy. Published this. Oh I then feel bad somebody, for whoever did that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> then then eventually somebody got like the firmware. And, and then they could like try to figure out the details there. It's like where the difference is. The other thing which happened, NVIDIA also had a big hack beginning of 2022 where just people stole like a bunch of source code of these kinds of things and also of the firmware. And like once you have the source code, you have like some way how to go around it or you just compile a new firmware where you actually disable this, right? And then p- some people just like eventually figure this out. For example, did I know it's about this memory access pattern? Well, of course, NVIDIA didn't tell us, right? Like people eventually figured this out. So it turns out eventually this mechanism was circumvented. What are the lessons here? I think there's one lesson. Mechanisms are theoretically possible, but they're way easier if you exactly know what you're looking for. This is way harder for AI. We we don't even know what AI systems in the future are going to be looking like and what their unique memory access pattern is. And this then changes again if your model is this big, that big, which activation function you have, and then you have like these tiny changes, right? Again. And people could deliberately change it in order to obfuscate what's going on. Indeed, right? This is just the thing you were doing. This is not possible for Ethereum, right? Where it's like, oh... There's, like, some, some idea when, when you don't know what they're looking for, you don't also know how to change it. But just, like, the spectrum which you can do in AI is just way bigger than you can do with fear mining. The other lesson is security is hard. I think that's the biggest concern about any hardware mechanisms. Whatever you're going to implement there, you really want to make sure it works and people cannot disable it. And what is the worst case if you disable it? In this case, they tried to throttle the graphic cards. If you disabled, you had like the full capability to use this. So if you would buy this graphic cards and NVIDIA was banking on it, just like they will never be able to use it this way. Well, it just changed. If you now just imagine like the US would try to do the same thing with China. Well, if you have these mechanisms and they like circumvent it, there we go. It's just like worthless. All of the, the controls before, right? It's really important how you circumvent this and how you implement this. If you literally do it on a chip, it's way harder to do it like if it's more like a firmware or even a higher level software abstraction, right? Can you do it on scale or do you need to like go to each chip and etch something away with a laser? It's way harder than just an exploit where you just like update the firmware on all the GPUs. So security is the key thing you want to look out there for. And what I eventually think we just need there, we need some ways to verify that certain mechanisms are still in place maybe remotely, maybe with other ideas like physical unclonable functions, like it's a technical thing, uh, which you can do, or maybe even with on-site inspections where you're just like, hey, we have this mechanism, we're like a bit worried you're tempered with this, can we please come on site and like check if everything is still where it's supposed to be by running some numbers, like trying if this mechanism is still working. I think it would probably be wrong to just say like, oh, we implement this and then it works. Our history of getting security right is just like, everything eventually gets broken. It's like roughly my take. It's always a matter of cost. And if we talk about this AI thing where we have a national interest in this, people are going to put a lot of power and a lot of money into like trying to break this.
0: I see. Okay, so it's possible in principle to do some things in this direction. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose the thing where it, at, you know, uh, samples from the calculations that it's being required to do and then stores those so that someone could expect it later. That, that does seem viable. Yeah. Uh, detecting whenever you're being used from an
1: ML training run, ooh, a bit more touch and go, whether that's really viable. Seems way uh, harder. You you seems, could imagine, seems harder. You can imagine earlier things. I mean, I'm excited about this whole research idea of like verifying properties of training runs. So at some point we might have some ideas like, what are actually the concerning properties of training runs? Are like transformers with this component more worrisome than this one, like a big model versus a small model? like we already talked about, it's like probably big models are more concerning, but maybe you could also say like a big model with a reinforcement learning component is like way more worrisome than the one without. So you have like some automated code inspection, but ideally you want to automate it because nobody wants to give away the intellectual property to do this. And this is also just like how these mechanisms can eventually play in. Maybe that's also just a software abstraction. So maybe for hardware enabled mechanisms to like, instead of thinking about it, like, oh, we're going to throttle GPUs and make sure they're actually going to be used for that. I think the way more exciting way how to think about it's like to provide assurances. Can you prove you do X? Like, I can now claim tomorrow, well, I'm not going to do training one, which is X big, but it would be way better if I have a technical mechanism which can just like, yep, he's right. He actually did this, right? I think people should think about the nuclear example. If I have some way how, like, one country can credibly say how many nuclear missiles it has and you trust the math, right, this seems way better. Nobody would lie about it. You can, like, solve this whole bargaining and commitment problems with these kinds of things just via this type of tech where, like, somebody's saying, like, look, I only trained systems this big, and here's the cryptographic proof that I only did this. Is that possible? Is that possible in general? Yeah, there's some ideas about it. I think people want to read more about this. There is a great paper by Yonada Shavit called "How to Catch a Chinchilla," where he describes like a whole regime which is building on many open questions we're having, but like it points towards like some research. Like, okay, this roughly is the thing we need there. So, you could imagine there's like some way there is a proof of learning how you can prove I've trained a certain system. If I know now how much compute you have, I can roughly say, oh, you can train 10 systems this size or one system this size. And eventually what I want you to see is, like, can you please show me the proof of learning for this one big system or the 10 small system? So basically prove me how you used all of this compute, right? So, like, for training, this is definitely possible. There's, like, a bunch of ways just, like, how to make it more feasible, less costly, which you need to investigate there, The problem is also you only need not do training. So, like, well, you have a bunch of compute, maybe a bit used for training, a bit for inference, maybe, like, you also run, like, a climate simulation. So, basically, what I need to have is, like, a proof of non-training, right? Like, can you prove me that you did not train the system or can you prove me that you did all of these other things, right, that you just ran inference and you not eventually trained the system? And I think they're, like, I would describe it as open research questions. People should definitely think more about this. We have not seen a lot of research there. And this can just really help with, like, lab coordination, international coordination just anyone where it's like if we all agree on we're not going to train a system bigger than x this would be a mechanism how we eventually can just have this and it's not going to be a silver bullet but it definitely helps right i I describe it usually as it reduces the social cost and this seems good right if tech can reduce the social cost i think if people have more belief in cryptography than than each other we should we should leverage that yeah
0: and a cross-cutting consideration with all of these hardware-enabled mechanisms is that we we should expect, based on past experience, that there'll be a cat-and-mouse game where people will they'll they'll put in place these mechanisms with the goal of restricting what you're doing, or uh, you know you being able you being able to prove what what you did reliably. And we should expect those to get cracked sometimes, that for people to figure out how to work around them. But as that cat-and-mouse game progresses over a period of years or, or decades, it the, the low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, breaking these mechanisms might get found, like with iPhones. And then eventually, eventually, it would be really quite challenging and not many people would be able to 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 break them. But it's unlikely that we'd be able to get there very quickly. That would actually require the experience of people trying really hard to break them and then all of those things being patched. And the point you were making is that in as much as it is strategic, like the the geopolitical strategy here requires that these mechanisms work. It fails catastrophically when one country or one actor can just suddenly break all of these things mm-hmm. because, you know, someone posted the wrong stuff on the internet and, and, and allowed them to break, uh, break it. So it would be dangerous to rely for stability or for our security on these hardware enabled mechanisms holding long term
1: because they can just fall apart completely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a key thing which I'm sometimes doing when I'm talking to policymakers. They just always love hardware. It's like great, it's just going to work. I was like, oh, no, like actually, like stuff is not secure. Like, oh, this is like, like have you seen the state of like cybersecurity? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's right? right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> terrible. And like that an iPhone is as secure as it is right now. Like this is years of work, and I think there's probably right now an exploit out there for listening on iPhone conversations, but it just costs you a hundred million, so you only do it for like literally like yeah really big targets and not a random heck on the street does it. I think it's really important whenever you need to reinvent the wheel regarding security just don't do it. Like there, there's this thing never roll your own crypto. Just don't do it. Use existing libraries. Never roll your own crypto. Use existing libraries to do this kind of stuff. And I think the same here. I mostly want to use existing mechanisms. I think there's still some research to be done and this is part of the reason why we want to roll it out as fast as possible and like Another way how to think about this, a lot of these mechanisms rely on, well, you can hack them because you have physical access to compute. Right. We, we have not talked about it like, a lot yet, but compute does not need to sit under your desk to use it. You can just use cloud computing. You can just like, I can right now access any computer in the world if people wanted me to. So, And this may maybe useful. If I implement something which is in hardware and you need to physically tamper with the hardware, you can't. You're only accessing it virtually, right? And even if you would tamper with it via software... Guess what? After your rental contract runs out, we're just going to reset the whole hardware. We reflash the firmware. We check, like, we have some integrity checks. And here we go. Here we are again. So maybe, maybe to build on top of this is we previously talked about the semiconductor supply chain. People should think about the compute supply chain, which goes one step further. At some point, your chips go somewhere. And the chips, most of the time, sit in large data centers owned by big cloud providers. So like we definitely see most AI labs right now are either a cloud provider or they partner with a cloud provider, and so if we then think about choke points, guess what? Cloud is another choke point. Like this is a really nice way to restricting access because I right now can give you access, you can use it, and if you start doing dangerous shit or like I'm like I'm getting worried about it. I can just cut it off any single time. This is not the same with hardware. Once the chip left the country and it's going somewhere, I'm having a way harder time. So maybe the thing you want to build there is like some safe havens of AI compute where you enable these mechanisms we just talked about there. You can be way more sure it actually work. And even if somebody misuses it, it, as a minimum, you can then cut off the excess right, for these kinds of things. So like the general move towards cloud computing, which I think is happening anyway is because just of the economy of scale, is probably favorable from a governance point of view, where you can just intervene and make sure this is used in in a more responsible manner. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, yeah, this is kind of an exciting and interesting point that people currently or many organizations currently have physical custody of the chips that they're using for computing purposes. If we came to think that any aggregation of significant amounts of compute was just inherently very dangerous for humanity, then you could have a central repository where only an extremely trusted group had custody. I guess it, would, it probably would be some combination of a company that's running this and the government also over overseeing Indeed. it, I suppose, as you might get with, uh, I suppose, private contractors who are producing nuclear missiles or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And. Then you could basically provide compute to everyone who wants it. And I suppose for civil liberties reasons, you would maybe want to have some restrictions on the amount of oversight uh, that, that you're getting. But you'd have some balancing act here between wanting to not intervene on what people can do on computers, but also needing to monitor to, to detect dangerous things. That mm-hmm. could be could be quite a challenging uh, balancing act. But basically, it is in principle possible in the long term to prevent large numbers of groups from having physical custody of enormous numbers of chips because, and indeed, it might be more economical for most people, uh, for most good actors to not have physical custody anyway. Uh, they, They would rather do it through a cloud computing provider, which then creates a very clear node where probably these hardware-enabled mechanisms
1: really could flourish, uh, because it would be so much harder to tamper with them. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe you don't even need them there because you just have like somebody who's running it. But um, and just we definitely see like a strong pivot towards the cloud, right? Yeah. And no AI lab is having the AI servers they eventually need in a basement to run these systems. They're sitting elsewhere. They're sitting somewhere close to a bunch of power, a bunch of water to run these systems. And if you could just make these facilities more secure on Drake, like, run them responsible. I think this might be just like a pretty exciting point to go to. You could even think about the most extreme example as a compute bank, right? We had a similar idea with nuclear fuel. Let's just build a nuclear fuel bank. And here we just have a compute bank. There's like a bunch of data centers in the world. We manage them internationally via a new agency. And it's just like we manage access to this. And maybe again here we mostly wanted and talk about the frontier AI systems, like the big, big, big systems. You eventually then just like, uh, yeah, I want to make sure I developed in a responsible and safe manner there.
0: Okay. I imagine that some listeners will be very interested in, in, in this thread that we just started talking about, which is the civil liberties issues, or mm-hmm. perhaps that the level of monitoring that we're talking about here and the level of concentration that we're talking about raises concerns about authoritarianism or uh, abu- abuse of power, too much surveillance. Um, I think these are super important issues. Yeah. Um, I think we've kind of had to uh, put this one to the side for for this interview. Uh, We'll we'll come to it in in some future interview uh, because it's it's a huge conversation of its own. And we might want to, I think first we need to understand the situation or like us as a community of people listening to the show and me hosting it, we need to understand the the issue here and understand how these mechanisms might work to begin with before we start thinking about, you know, how exactly would we balance the implementation of this against like other very broad social concerns? Uh, You're you're nodding along, long I'm
1: I'm on the same page here as you are. I think just like, we really need to be careful, like, implementing these mechanisms. Enabling a surveillance state or, like, some of these mechanisms eventually would enable this to some degree. We really need to be careful here. I think the notion is to understand. We talk about AI compute here. We're not talking about AI, all the compute. I think this gets you a really, really long way. And, yeah, seems worthwhile thinking about. And as I just said, I'm, like, trying to hint at some things. I'm not saying the compute bank is a good idea. I think it's good for people to have the ideas out there. And we really need to think carefully about, first of all, what is warranted? And if, if it's warranted, how we would get there and if this would even be a good idea.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's push on from hardware enabled mechanisms specifically, because I want to do a section now where I explain why on some level, I just don't buy the idea that the above ideas are anywhere near sufficient uh, for, mm-hmm. for for the problems that we're facing. The reason is that, as, as I suggested, as I began to explain earlier, that on current trends, it seems like people are going to be able to train really dangerous models on their home computers in something like 10 years. So this stuff that's focused on preventing massive server farms from falling into the wrong hands or being used to do dangerous stuff seems like that you know that's going to work for the era that we're in right now for the next couple of years but it's going to quickly become insufficient and I'm not sure what we're going to do at that next stage throughout this conversation we're going to be talking about these future models as if they're agents that are going to be semi-autonomously going out into the world and and, and taking actions on on people's behalf and I guess possibly on their on their own behalf at at, at some point it's possible that some listeners, I guess, especially people who are not paying as much attention to AI, I think, are going to be a bit taken aback by this because uh, it's—you might have the impression that well, GPT-4 is just this like fill the word gap um, process. It's—it's it's not an agent. It's not out there in the world uh, doing a whole lot of stuff. But I'm going to assume that models in a couple of years' time are going to be these agents because I think it's very clearly true, because people are working very hard to turn them into agents, and they have already so many of the latent capabilities that would be necessary for them to operate as staff members of a firm, basically engaging in a very wide suite of, of activities, potentially with supervision or and, you know with, with, with partial autonomy. I guess if you think that that's not so likely anytime soon, we'll just, then maybe just imagine that this is coming a little bit later, uh, once once we have figured out how to turn these models into more useful agents uh, that, that are you know, engaging in quite complex tasks uh, out on their own. Let's work through this uh, bit by bit. As I understand it, Sam Altman has said that it cost over $100 million to train GPT-4. Do, do we know anything more than that at this point?
1: I'm I'm not aware of any more information. There have been estimates on like how much compute you use, and like I think this seems roughly the right ballpark. I would probably expect this is the whole development cost, not only the final training run. So like yeah. the final training run is just like it. A- yeah, a little bit less, maybe less than a half.
0: Yeah. So I, I, this, this is almost, we're already on a side note here, but if it only cost $100 million, uh, you know, that's, a, that's a lot of money for you and me. It's uh-huh. not a lot of money for the government or for tech companies. So couldn't, like this year, couldn't Alphabet or the US government just run a, do, a, do a training run that's 100 times larger, throw $10 billion at the problem and and, and produce GPT-5?
1: I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It sounds like a lot of money, but like for government aspects, like no it's lot a money. Uh, it's just the question what you get out of it, right? Do you think right now GPT-4 is worth 100 million? I don't know. I think we're seeing it right now to which degree it's like actually worth this much money. Like we we entering this new era of large deployment of large language models. We see how much money they actually worth for. Could they eventually do it? You still need talent to do it. I really feel pretty confident the government could not pull this off right now with their talent to eventually go about this. And then they need to fight with others about the compute, right? OpenAI has contracts with Microsoft Azure. They have like their clusters to eventually do this. The government maybe has like some. Some supercomputers with the DOE, I don't think they have the best chips in there to do then train the system. And then you just need the engineers to also do it. So like, there's one thing, how much money you spend on it. This is just a compute, right? There's the other thing, which how much and which talent you need and how good this talent eventually is. I think there's like, as with semiconductor industry, like a lot of tacit knowledge and a lot of tricks to eventually train these systems, which are that good. Yeah. I
0: guess a, g- a complication here is that as I understand it, when you're doing training runs trying to get better performance on these models, ideally you increase the amount of compute and the amount of data simultaneously. That's kind of ideal. And if you just massively increase the amount of data or the amount of compute without increasing mm-hmm. the other one, then you kind of get diminishing returns on, on each one of those inputs. And because we, we are getting kind of close to exhausting the kinds of text that GPT-4 w- was trained on, increasing the compute a 100 uh, fold wouldn't bring as much improvement as you might expect uh, holding, if, you, if you simply held the data constant as well. Indeed, yeah. Okay, new question. Uh, to, to get the same boost in performance that we got from GPT-3 to GPT-4, do you know how much the model would cost to train roughly currently or maybe how long we would have to wait for algorithmic and commute improvements to occur so that we could get that, uh, get the GPT-5 equivalent, the same boost in performance for, again, around
1: $100 million? million? Yeah, there are multiple ways to think about this. Um... One way how to think about this is just like, well, from GPT-3 to GPT-4, it required an order of magnitude more compute, right? So let's say from GPT-4 to the next system is also another order of magnitude compute. Now you could ask yourself, like, well, hardware gets better over time. How many years do we need to wait that, like, hardware in the future is, like, as good, so basically get for the same price yeah, like you get like the the GPT five system basically for the same price as before. So if like hardware gets like doubles every two years, every two point five years, like it's roughly the doubling of hardware price performance, we then just need like to rate right, like roughly three doublings, right? Which is then like six to eight, yeah, six to eight years or something. And then it's like ten times cheaper to to train these systems. And then you could just like yeah, have the GPT five for like the GPT four cost if you just go via this. But next to this we have like this whole notion of algorithmic efficiency. You just become better. Systems are becoming like Yeah, more better at absorbing the data and increase more capabilities for like the same amount of resources. This is a really messy, just like to think about this and what it's been there. We have like some papers which look into the doubling of algorithmic efficiency in in computer vision. And that's been roughly every year, right? So with this notion, if you just need to like go 10x and we like wait like three to like roughly two, four years, then like, yeah, we like have again like this many algorithmic efficiency that you get the same there. But on top of this, you have a lot of other techniques. And I think if you just look at the system, um, I think it's called Lama, which was somewhat leaked by Facebook eventually, uh, what happened there. And then we got Alpaca, which is like this fine-tuned system, which used GBT 3.5 or GBT 4 to like make it better. right? And I think this was way cheaper how you got like a lot of capabilities. I've not seen the full capabilities and full range. But I think it's pointing towards like there can be some kind of distillation. If there's like a more powerful system already out there, you have an easier time to build a system which is like a little bit closer to it. You probably want to surpass it, but it's like easier to get to these kinds of system, to uh, get to these kinds of capabilities. But overall, really, really hard to say, how do you measure performances? Does it like, is as good across all these performances as we eventually think? We have like some benchmarks sort of think about it. And this whole notion of algorithmic efficiency is like really hard to wrap your head around, like measure in a quantifiable way. Okay, so... I think a key thing that people
0: should understand here, though, is that in in recent years we've seen very rapid improvements in algorithmic efficiency. So, with the same amount of compute and data, you know, from one year to the next, you're able to get significantly improved performance. I'm I trying to remember, like, do, do you know roughly what is the the doubling time, or I guess in this case, the halving time that we're getting mm-hmm. from from algorithmic improvements
1: for computer vision? According to the best analysis we have there, it's roughly one year. Okay, which is still less than we spend on compute, right? We've been doubling compute every six months. So basically, we scaled up compute faster than we got by algorithmic efficiency. And then, of course, we have these gains on top of each other, right? You get more algorithmic efficiency, you throw more computer data, so you basically have faster capabilities there. I would be, yeah, I'm excited about what's going to be happening in the future. It's like really hard to say, and this is only for computer vision. I hope we have like more analysis on there uh, in the future, and like other domains where we can look into this, like what has been the algorithmic efficiency there.
0: Yeah. Do you know if we're, Getting close to running out of improvements and for, for improvements to the algorithm so that maybe this, you know, a one-year halving mm-hmm. time won't be sustained long term?
1: Um <laughs> That's guesswork. Don't are know, we yeah. running out of ideas? Um I don't know. Maybe maybe something is true just like, well, maybe ideas are getting harder to find, right? There's well, like you- some reason to believe that just like, well, it's hard to find ideas. Um, but maybe also just more people. Like let's just say there's like this chance every single time to find a new idea, which is that good, and we have more people working it. well, then we find more ideas into the future, right? So we're like, we definitely have more interest right now in AI system. So we'd expect that we have like more ideas in the future if we going forward. An interesting notion is maybe that we see more and more research happening in industry, right? And industry is, compared to academia, less diverse in their research ideas. And maybe that's bad. Maybe, like, this less diversity in research they do on AI. They're more, less likely to stumble across new ideas, which are, like, really groundbreaking, right? Like, if you find something which is outside the current paradigm, this is more likely to happen in academia. And academia is maybe not seeing as big of an AI boost as the industry is currently doing it, right? Um, so it's really hard to say, in particular, where we're just entering this new era where just, like, Historically, also, just a bunch of research has been happening in the industry. This was not the case before for other technologies, right? Where like a lot of just like the groundbreaking research was mostly coming out of academia.
0: Okay, uh, so to get to my bottom, bottom line here. yeah, On current trends, when would an individual be able to train GPT-4 themselves? Uh, you know, say at home <laughs> using a bunch of hardware that they've bought for around $100,000, I
1: mean, we can just try to run with the previous numbers we were talking about, basically. So, there are, like, two components which feed into this while compute gets cheaper over time. And the other component being we have some algorithmic efficiency there, right? So, like, if we just say, like, yeah, (laughs) what is the cost when you would be able to train a GBD-4 alone? Let's say we go, it costs you 100000 instead of the $100 or something. We go down, like, by three orders of magnitude, right? So, if we then think about this, and, like, we put together just, like, well, we get every year the, the algorithmic efficiency doubles, so, like, every year you need, like, only half the amount of compute you used before to eventually get to the system, and then every two years you get, like, two times more compute for the same price performance, then this should be around, like, seven to eight years, okay. if you think about this. But then we're still talking about 100,000, like, which is, like, still not your local GPU at home, but maybe you could just run compute there. Yeah, I do think, this is probably not going to be the case, the reason which I already said is like, well, I think it might be getting harder to find new algorithms to like continue this. And I think it's really unclear if this doubling time about algorithmic efficiency, which I was just talking about from computer vision, also applies to language models or whatever the future of AI systems is. And the other reason being labs are starting to become more secret about the algorithms. They're like, they stop publishing them. So it will be really hard for like an individual to exactly know what the architecture is of these systems. We don't know about the architecture of GPT-4. We don't know about the architecture of Palm 2, which is the recent release model from Google. And I think this just makes it significantly harder for people to replicate any of these efforts. The reason why open source has been so, so close so far to, to the cutting edge is mostly, well, yeah, we worked in the open, right, these, yeah. these systems. And this will definitely get harder over time. Okay, so yeah, there's there's quite a few pieces here. Let's Mm -hmm. take them one by one.
0: I I thought in terms of someone being able to produce a very powerful model on kind of uh, the amount of hardware that an individual or a small business might be able to buy – the compute is compute is getting cheap at a, at, a, at an unusually fast rate, but maybe then the limiting factor would become access to the enormous amounts of data that are required. So perhaps you know, in six or seven years' time, you might have enough compute in principle as a small business, but you wouldn't have access to the entire corpus of of, of data off the internet. Although, as we talked about at the very beginning, uh, you can copy and paste this stuff surprisingly easily. Right. So maybe, maybe 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 all of that. You've got to get the right point. data. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess. In as much as you were doing multimodal training, which I, I think you know, like one mode is text, another mode is, say, video, mm-hmm. or you're doing images, then the amount of data that we're talking about that you might be training a video system on might mm-hmm. be a ve- lot larger than the corpus of text because it's just so much harder to compress and, and store video than it is text. Indeed. Uh, so that could end up being a limiting factor for a while. Would yeah. this be well? Do, do you even have the hard disks and the ability to move that amount of data back and yeah. forth for the training process, even if you can afford
1: the chips involved? And this also reminds me of just like when I talk about compute halving, like there's like this pretty narrow perspective where just like I talked about compute mostly regarding floating point operations per second. But there's like way more to compute. Like each system has just like memory on the system, right? Then they need to talk to each other. And like... The growth of floating points per second, when I talk about like a doubling every two years, this is about the price performance. Like how many flops per second do I get per dollar? For example, about the memory capacity and the memory bandwidth on a GPU, on an AI accelerator has been growing way slower. So if you continue having these really large systems, you might have... St- Theoretically enough flop percent on your GPU, but you don't have enough memory to store it. And then you need to upload it on your hard disk and you see like really, really large penalties. So there might be the thing where just like your single GPU might have theoretically enough computation performance, but you just don't have the memory. And that's the reason why you need a ton of them. This is already what we're seeing right now. Like memory is growing slower. These systems are like really, really large. And ideally you want to store the whole weights on the onboard memory on the GPU. And this is too big, right? They have like, I don't know, forty to eighty gigabytes if we talk about these systems nowadays. Systems are like roughly half a terabyte up to a terabyte big nowadays. You can't fit them on there on a single GPU. So you just need a lot of them, even though theoretically the computation performance is sufficient. You need more memory. And this overall then drives the costs, right? Where you just like you just need the capacity to, to store this. And this might be another factor which like yeah makes it really harder for like just random people to then train these systems. Okay. So
0: that's one aspect of it. The other one that yeah, you were just alluding to is this issue of even if the cutting edge labs are coming up with all of these great algorithmic uh, improvements, will those be widely accessible? So it seems like until yesterday, everyone was just publishing everything. All of this incredibly important, very valuable, potentially dangerous information about how to how to do ML uh, training uh, was just... It was, it's just online, basically, anyone anyone could grab it. That has started to change. And it's almost certainly going to continue to get locked down uh, for a whole lot of reasons, both commercial and, I guess, potentially security focused. So there's this question, how far behind the cutting edge might we expect the open source amateur uh, side of ML to, to fall? On the one hand, the fact that they won't be able to necessarily just copy all of the research that open AI is doing is definitely going to push things back. On the other hand, it does seem like the open source community is very enthusiastic about doing all of this work and mm-hmm. doing their own research. Um, people are doing all kinds of work on AI outside of the outside of the labs now, building on what is already available. A lot of people have a fire in their belly about making sure that AI not be concentrated in particular firms because they're worried about this concentration of power issue. And as you were, were saying. Initially, the first person has to build this language model by training it on all of the text from the internet. But the copycats can potentially, instead, uh, uh, listeners might might not have not have heard this one, but basically, it's possible to train a, a very good language model much faster by rather than training it on you know all of the text on Wikipedia, instead, you just put prompts into the into GPT four and then uh, see the stuff that comes out and mm-hmm. then update a ton based on that and then just do that for enormous numbers of inputs and outputs, uh, and that turns out to be enormously more efficient because. In a sense, GPT-4 has already done the work of distilling the wisdom from the original much larger source data. GPT-4 has distilled it into a relatively small number of, of weights, of, of, of numbers in this, in this enormous matrix. Okay, so there's like some, some reasons why you might expect the open source people to keep up and some reasons why you might expect them not to. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Do, do you have any, uh, an overall take here? Yeah, there is a paper called Societal and Governance Implications of Data Efficiency, and people should just read it and replace data with compute. And I'm like trying to quickly explain it. What we mostly talked about is so, so-called access effect. So if like compute efficiency goes up over time, so basically you get more capabilities for less compute, right? As we just talked about the open source communities, like catching up, they have like pretty good capabilities. They're not that far behind. So basically it gets easier for people to get access to this, to these kinds of capabilities, right? Over time, you get more access to this. That's one effect. The other effect is you have a performance effect the performance effect is basically for the one who's leading, well, you know, also get more for your previous compute budget, right? So they also like pushed up like how much performance they eventually have. So these effects then basically push the the leggers, but also the leaders to some degree. And this is really important to think about because... While maybe we have, like, capabilities or, like, benchmarks in their percentages, but like, oh, 80 to 90%, sometimes 99% is, like, way, way better than 98%. I think the best example is, like, self-driving cars. Like, right now, maybe you have, like, self-driving cars which are, like, 98% good. It's not enough. We're just not deploying it. And, like, whoever has, like, the first self-driving car who's, like, at 100%, they just win. That's, like, a winner takes all dynamics, right? Um, maybe. So we have this whole notion of, like, well... There, there is, like, some people who are just, like, leading with the frontier and they also, like, have this effect where just, like, also, like, they get more capabilities with the same effects which, like, puts the open sources, which makes their life easier. And then the important thing to look at is just, like, if we, for example, think about malicious use of maybe open sourcers or, like, maybe other actors, it all depends, like, how the, the offense and defense is eventually going to play out there. So, you might imagine that the, the people who are, like, leading, those are the, let's say, nice guys. We can regulate them and then we can use the systems to defend against this other system. and this is what we need to think about, just, like, what is the offense-defense balance here eventually? Yeah. What is, like, does the GPT-5, which they can train, like, which is way more expensive, but can this then defend against, like, all the GPT-4s which are going to be, like, in abundance on the internet in the future? And I think this is a really interesting research question. Yeah. Like, one thing to clear, think about, and maybe one reason I'm, like, somewhat optimistic, that you just think, like, oh, these future-capable systems are, like, way better defenders or, like, are way more likely to eventually just, like, take over, like, yeah, have, like, certain dynamics where they just win, but are way more deployed.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's just back up one one second here. Uh-huh. The key thing that spits out of doing this sort of analysis is you were saying, well, maybe some would be able to, uh, you know, an individual would be able to train uh, GPT-4 at relatively low cost in seven years or something like that, mm-hmm. if current trends continue. Now, probably that's a little bit early, uh, at least for the $100,000 budget, because there's various other challenges that they might face in, in, in doing this. But when you're dealing with a bunch of exponentials, it doesn't uh-huh. push it out very long. Uh, maybe they need uh, it to become four times easier, but then that's just like another year or two. Uh, so if it's not seven years, uh, it certainly will be within 15 years, I think, uh, and maybe within 10, because people will find workarounds for, for all of these challenges that we've, been, that we've been talking about. And 10 years is not very long. 10 <laughs> years is coming along pretty soon. Uh, and I guess conceivably, it could be earlier. Now, okay, some people might be thinking, "Well, GPT four it's not that dangerous, you know. GPT four is 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 very cool, but that's not the kind of thing that I'm like most worried about about misuse for, uh, you know. Probably we're, we're more concerned when we're thinking about GPT five and, and GPT six, which might have a ten x cost increase uh, mm-hmm. again. So, so that's again it's pushing things out, but again, only a couple of years yeah. before we uh, need to be concerned about uh, those models as well. and in making this point, I was slightly working with one hand behind my back when I said, what about a $100,000 budget? Uh-huh. Because there are, if it costs a million or 10 million, there's an enormous number of vectors out there in the world that have access to that level of mm-hmm. compute uh, and that level of budget. And also they can just wait longer. They could just do the trading run over over a longer period of time if, if they can't get that number of chips all concentrated in, in one place. So this era in which you can like on current trends, with the way that we do computation now, that we can restrict access to the ability to train, you know, very compute-intensive, like by what are today's standards, very compute-intensive models, that how long we can deny people access to that doesn't seem like it's a very long era. We're talking about a five- or ten-year era here, after which it's much more like we need to get substantially more heavy handed with denying people access to the hardware or centralizing it somewhere in order to monitor it all the time or just accept that this stuff is proliferating massively to, mm-hmm. to everyone. And, and hopefully by then we've figured out that it's safe or we've done various other things to, to, to make it safe. just to say five or ten years is not very long, folks. <laughs> <laughs> ten years ago, yeah. I moved uh, to come and work at 80,000 hours. If yeah, and I, I here I, we are. Okay, great. <laughs> right. um, so what are we going to do? And you were starting to raise this this issue of offense-defense balance. We were saying, well, maybe this compute stuff is not going to cut it forever. Yeah. Now we need to start thinking about a different approach. And that approach might be that, sure, the amateur on their home computer or the small business uh, might be able to train quite powerful models. But we should still expect that enormous internet giants like uh, Google or authorities like the US government should have substantially better models, even if... It's impressive what like what I can access on my home computer. There's no way that I'm going to have access to the best by any stretch of the imagination. So, how can what might we make things safer on a more sustainable basis? Perhaps what we need is to use that advantage that the large players, uh, hopefully the more legitimate and hopefully the uh, well-intentioned players, have, in order to monitor what everyone else is doing or find some way to protect against the harmful effects mm-hmm. that you might get from mass proliferation to, to everyone. Yeah. This, this sounds, this sounds uh, well, maybe this does sound cr- crazy to people or maybe, maybe it doesn't, but I, I feel like what we're really talking about here is having models that are constantly vigilant they're like, I guess I, I've been using the term like sentinel AIs that are monitoring everything that's happening on the internet and can spring into action whenever they notice that someone, whether it be an idiot or a joker or a terrorist or a, another state or a hostile state or something, is beginning to do something really bad with, with their AIs and prevent it. Uh, hopefully relying on the fact that the cutting edge model that the US government has is like far above uh, what what it's going to be competing with. But this is a world, Lennart, in which humans are these kind of irrelevant, like fleshy things that uh-huh. can't, can't possibly comprehend the speed at which these AI combatants are acting. They just have this autonomous, like standoff slash war with one another across the earth. <laughs> yeah, while we watch on, while we watch on and, while, while watch on and uh-huh. hope. That the good guys win, it, although they said that our team so, wins. Yeah. Okay, I, sorry, I, yeah, that was an extremely long comment for me. But <laughs> am I
1: understanding this right? Um, I mean, we are speculating here about the future. So are we right? I don't know. I think we're, like, we're pointing to like a scenario which eventually we, we can imagine, right? And I'm having a hard time telling you the exact answers, to so just like, like, particularly with just like AI governance or my research is like stop access for forever or something. I think that's like a really high burden to eventually to fulfill. What I'm just pointing out to is like, well, we have this excess effect, but we need to think about the defense capabilities here. In particular, if you think about regulating the frontier. And I think this is part of what makes me a bit more optimistic. Maybe you've just described one scenario. hours, like, well, we have like these AI defender systems and fighting and they're just doing everything. Yeah, maybe this works well and we, just, we can just enjoy each other, right? And like having a good time and it seems great. <laughs> um, but maybe it's also just like more manual. I think it's not really clear to me. But I think the other aspect to keep in mind here is we're talking about you like let's like, just say this is gpt 6 system everybody can train it whatever this future system M- maybe this system is again not dangerous maybe there's just like, going to be like a change in the game is, like again where we talk go from this 89% to this 90% or something along these lines which is like makes a big difference in capabilities right But like eventually gives to defend like a big advantage there maybe people even don't have an interest in using all of these systems because the other systems are just way better, right? We're not thinking about, like, well, exactly about malicious actors who are trying to do this. I would expect the majority of people not wanting to do this, right? Those are problems you already have right now where, like, people you can just buy guns. Yeah, and, like, this goes wrong a lot of times. But, like, it could just be – it's not like every second person in the world wants to buy guns and, like, do terrible things with it. Maybe that's the same with these kinds of futures. Maybe then these defender systems are just sufficient to eventually fight these kinds of things off, in particular if you have like maybe good compute monitoring, just in data, general data center monitoring regimes in place there. What's important here to think about is just like, compute has been doubling every six months, this might not continue forever, this might continue for a long time, and all the other aspects which is basically reduce the compute threshold, have not been growing that fast, right? So we, like, again, all I'm saying is like it buys us a couple of more years, right? Like more than is 10, 20, 30, like maybe that's what I'm pointing to. But overall, what we're trying to do with AI governance to do is just, like, yeah, AI is coming. This might be a really, really big deal. It will probably be a really big deal, and we need to go there in a sane, sensible, well-managed way with these institutions. And like many open questions, as you just like outlined, where we don't have the answers yet. We don't even know if this is going to be the case, but we can imagine this being the case. Yeah. And we, yeah, we just need the systems in place to deal with this.
0: Yeah, I think a key issue here that makes this feel so unnerving and also makes feature that I was describing seem quite hard to avoid is the fact that these ML systems act so much faster than humans, such mm-hmm. that if we were relying on the police to respond, uh, or, you know, law enforcement to react you know, as human beings, you know, holding meetings and doing stuff, they would have lost yeah. by, by the time they could even figure out what was happening. Uh, it's quite like, we're kind of like sloths by comparison to uh, computers. It's just, I think, I'm not sure what the fundamental reason is here. I suppose the human brain operates with very little energy. What is it, like two watts or something, mm-hmm. something ludicrous. So uh, so, th- so that's one impediment that we face that we're just not using very much energy relative to what a, what a server farm would. The other thing is just uh, biology has struck on a mechanism for signal transmission that is incredibly slow relative <laughs> to what you can do down um, a piece of metal or like let alone an optic fibre or whatever. So we're just at this very severe disadvantage Um in terms of how quickly we can think and right. how quickly we can do stuff, I guess, yeah. especially relative to an incredibly specialized model that's just trying to do one yeah. one thing.
1: I don't feel optimistic about um, the cyber police fighting off with current technologies, uh, future AI systems. We yeah. Defenders need to equip themselves eventually with the systems and the thing which I'm hoping to enable that the defenders will have the most capable systems. I think this seems like a pretty likely thing to do in the future, in particular if you just like, yeah, if you think about the regulation of the frontier systems, in particular, if they're as powerful as we're like trying to imagine here, governments will come and intervene right um and this will just help them right
0: so i feel like this needs to be discussed more or i don't Uh think that this has sunk (laughs) into the mainstream at all as yet the fact that humans are from a security standpoint going to be obsolete pathetic like flesh bags uh, pretty soon (laughs) and that we're going to be in the crossfire of this like ai versus ai like ai versus ai Dominated future. If this is just what most people thinking about AI governance or AI security think, then I, I, I reckon maybe uh, this needs to be passed on to regulators somewhat uh, quickly because I don't feel like we're <laughs> on track to put the necessary infrastructure in place for this to work well in time. <laughs> is that about right?
1: I think I think this seems about right. I mean, you've been talking about AI on this podcast number thirty-four hours for a long time, and like I think the last couple of months have been a game changer there. Um, are we on track now? No, I don't think so. I've not seen evidence yet, but I think we're definitely moving in the right direction yeah. um, to just make more progress there. And I think it overall makes me optimistic. If you now see the degree which people bind to these kinds of things we just talked about, this has definitely changed. I think this eventually enables you to just like do these kinds of measures we were just talking about there. Um, there's like a bunch of things which just make me make me hopeful there. But yeah, clearly it's not sufficient. I don't think we're on the ball, but I'm optimistic we will hopefully build more in the future. Um, but we are just facing one of the bigger challenges we've yeah, ever faced there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I guess just to be clear, I, I'm not advocating for the outcome that I was just describing or saying that this is good. Uh, I'm just saying that when I project forward, I can't exactly see an, an alternative. But of course, it, predicting the future is incredibly hard. So yeah. maybe maybe I, maybe, I have a misguided picture here. Or maybe you have a misguided picture here. And when we come back in five years time, we'll kind of uh, laugh a little bit about at the Hopefully. stuff that we expected <laughs> to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah to me it just feels a bit like the the default uh, and i think more people mm-hmm. like more work needs to be done ahead of time to make that safe because it sounds terrifying like this is starting to set off my authoritarian alarms and my yeah, uh like, indeed especially i don't know maybe this is a sci-fi trope but you need to empower the defensive AI systems to react extremely swiftly, mm-hmm. to attack and shut down things that are sufficiently hostile and sufficiently dangerous. But now you're really giving like the nuclear codes, well, not, yeah. not, not, not literally, but... <laughs> well,
1: hopefully not. Maybe we can draw a line there.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. But you're, but you're giving it incredibly powerful authority for these systems to act autonomously and yeah. in a violent way against, the, against adversaries. Just and, against all the compute, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, and I feel like you really want to, at that point, have specified and have tested very carefully what yeah. these things do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because um, this is like the maximally dangerous uh, kind of application.
1: And yet not applying it this way is also yeah. so dangerous. <laughs> in the beginning you asked me about it, was like, well, what are the things to think about when you hear hearing new policy, right? I'm just like, maybe this is a way to stress test anything. It's like, okay, here are like Rob's wildest nightmares. Yeah, right. <laughs> how does this going in the future with this policy eventually help with these kinds of wildest nightmares, right? And yeah. like of course I like I discounted a bit, but I was like, well, that's one thing how it's eventually gonna turn out. And it's like we yeah, we just projected a bunch of things in the past. We mostly talk about like where's gonna be the frontier, where is gonna be the leggers, where gonna D A B, where just like what is the excess of like an Just like any relevant actors or rogue states, what they can do. And then this whole notion is like how will the offense defense eventually go, right? And like many reasons it goes well, and there are also many reasons why it eventually does not go well. In particular if you think about like certain types of attacks where just like the offender um has just a way big advantage. Yes.
0: Yes. I guess we're talking about how in this future humans human reaction time would simply be too slow to be relevant. Uh, It's good like I don't know. At a very different scale, you might think that our social reaction time, our reaction time as a government and as a society to these developments is also just way too slow. That it's taking months for people to digest what's happening and for things that five years ago would have seemed like crazy reactions to start to now seem like just – sense, like obviously the sensible next policy stamp. Mm-hmm. But – if this stuff comes at us sufficiently quickly, we're just not going to have time to make peace with what has to be done and, and like, do the necessary work to make it happen safely before we have to have this stuff in place or we're we're screwed. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think think that's where this whole idea of, like, slowing down comes, right? It's just, like, I mean, it's just obvious they'd be, like, not equipped to this. Just, like, the current progress is just immense, what's been happening there. It caught everybody by a surprise, right, where just everybody's updating, yeah when and what is going to happen in the future and just like yeah just going more slowly and more sanely would be a great way forward i think just like to some of you this is what AI governance is about which is like hey let's take a look at the state what's going on and how should we move should we move forward like what should move forward like all these kinds of questions um should be asked and yeah i think we're like clearly in a world right now where we discuss them and this seems great so we've been talking a little bit about like
0: my nightmares and my bad (laughs) dreams and like where Rob's imagination goes when he uh, imagines how this is all going to play out. Maybe let's talk about another one of these that I've been mulling over uh, recently as I've been reading a lot about AI and seeing what capabilities are are coming online. Uh, This time, a bit more related to computer security specifically. So the question is, if GPT-6 or some future um, model that is, I guess, more agentic than than GPT-4 is, if it were instructed to hack into as many servers as possible and then use the new compute that's available to it from having done that to run more copies of itself that also then need to hack into other computer systems and uh, maybe train themselves in a, one direction or another or find new secu- like use that compute to find new security vulnerabilities that they can then use to break into other uh, sources of compute and so on, uh, on and on and on.
1: How much success do you think it might have? Um, I think it's definitely a worry which a bunch of people talk about, right? Just like, as I just like hinted before, it's like I think computer security is definitely not great. I do think computer security at data centers is probably better than at other places. And I feel optimistic about detecting it. It might be a cat and mouse game here, but like eventually you can detect it. Why is this the case? Well, every server only has like finite throughput. That's just the case. As we just talked about, like there's only that many flops per second which can be run. So there's like a limited number of copies that can run there. And... Well, data centers are trying to, like, utilize their computer as efficiently as possible, right? Like, right now you can expect, like, most data centers run at least at 80% utilization or something because it's always just, like, throwing money out of the window. Nobody wants to do this. So if this stupidly sick system, right, this, this bad worm comes along and just, like, hacks into the system, there's only that much computer available, which you eventually can use. Then it's, like, a bit tricky because, like, there is a bit, there is a bit, like, ah, oh, it's kind of, kind of like a scheduling problem. Well, and if it would, like, like, let's say kick the other workloads out, well, somebody would notice. Like, well, like, I was, I was running the science experiment. Like, this never really finished. What's going on there? And data centers are already doing this, like monitoring for this. I think the best example we already seen in the real world is like these whole um, malware where like people, personal computers were used for crypto mining. It's like, oh, this malware is just running on your computer. And then it tried to use your processor to mine crypto, like for this hacker's personal wallet to like to get more money. And people started noticing this. Most people were was like, well, my computer's a bit slower than normally, right? So people tried to modify this algorithm. It's like, oh, it's just only using 20% of the capability of the processing performance. So you're not detected. Um, but if you actually go for throttle, you just, like, I don't know, literally your, your laptop fan would turn on. You're just like, what's going on there? Like, if people just see their laptop, sometimes utilization going up to 100% without them doing anything, be suspicious. Probably should reset this reset this thing. And I think it's the same for data centers. Where it's like, oh, there is a computer worm here. They're doing something. Uh, let's try to kick it out. And then you can imagine a cat and mouse game, which might be a bit more complicated. And maybe this is part of the reason why. You maybe I'm advocating for the thing which no data center provider wants, which is like a big red off switch. It's like, okay, maybe I actually want this because normally you're trying to optimize uptime because, yeah, that's what you want to go for as a data center provider. They definitely have different tiers there. It's like, yeah, you're the highest uptime. You're, you're, the, you're the coolest data center out there. Um, and here we just want like, okay, gosh, we literally lost control here. Let me just turn off all of the things. Maybe like on a virtual and a software level, like turning off virtual machines is not sufficient because it's like a really sophisticated computer room. It's already trying to escape. You literally want to just like turn off the compute and like figuring out and have forensic what's been going on there and trying to defend it. What we eventually exploit there is existing security bugs and holes and usually fix them. If we just figure out what they are, this takes a little bit of time, but at least compared to AI systems, we have some clue. We at least develop these systems and, like in a in a way, how we understand them, so we can try to fix it. Yeah,
0: yeah, just. To add a bit more colour to to this scenario, I think I probably misspoke when I said if GPT-6 were instructed to do this because it would be much more sensible to have a a model that's extremely specialised at hacking into all kinds of computer systems, which is a much narrower task than being able to deal with any input and output of Mm -hmm. of, of language whatsoever. So it probably would be uh, quite specialised. And yes, I basically am describing uh, a computer worm, which I think our our youngest listeners might not really have that much exposure (laughs) to computer worms. But from I understand the early days of of, of the internet through... uh, and like networking computers through to about the period of Windows Vista, this was a regular occurrence where basically people uh, would find some vulnerability within an operating system or sometimes within like email software that would basically allow you to break into a computer, then email everyone with a copy of the virus, and then it would spread to other computers um, until basically everything was shut down. Just in a in a cacophony of people passing the this this um, malware or, the, or or this virus between all of the all of their computers. You, you could um, Google uh, this question like the largest um, computer worms or the largest outbreaks. Um, I, I remember when, when I was a kid, there was a handful of times that. Enormous numbers of computers went down basically for a day or two uh, until these vulnerabilities could be patched. Yeah. You would have just uh, companies completely inoperable more or less because their computer systems had been infected with these worms. I think that stopped more or less because computer security got better. It's still very bad, but it was mm-hmm. so bad then yeah. um, that it's not so easy. There's now a lot more firebreaks that make it hard to put together all of the security vulnerabilities that you need for a worm like that to operate. Yeah. So why could this come back? In the worm case, it was just a person or a group that programmed this tiny piece of software to use just a handful of vulnerabilities or maybe just a single vulnerability in order to uh, break into these computer systems one after another in in a kind of exponential uh, growth situation. In this new world, we're imagining a program an ML system that is extremely good at doing security research, more or less, and discovering like all kinds of different vulnerabilities. It basically has all of the knowledge that one might need in order to be a, a, an incredibly effective uh, hacker. And so it's going to just keep finding new vulnerabilities that it can use. So you shut it down from one avenue and then it's now it's like discovered something else and it's copying itself using this using this other mechanism. And potentially it could also self-modify in order to obfuscate its existence or obfuscate its, its presence on a computer system. So it's quite hard to clear it out. So it can kind of lie idle for a very long time. Uh, using very little uh, compute, and then uh, like come come to life again and, uh, and copy itself elsewhere using some some new zero day exploit, so some new as yet unknown computer vulnerability that it, that is picked up in the meantime. Okay, so I, it seems like serious people worry that something along these lines could happen. I, I think uh, you know, jokers have already tried doing this with existing language models. Of course, they, they don't have the capabilities required to. To simply pull this off, uh, it, 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 I mean, it's not—it's not, it's not simple. So, so it actually hasn't happened. But uh,
1: if the capabilities got to a sufficiently high level, then this could be something that we could observe. Yeah, it's—it seems like everybody's computer security is like, yeah, worst nightmares. These kinds of things, like, yeah, having having like thought a bit and like working information security, don't like, yep. Information security is, like, pretty bad. There's definitely different companies with different standards there, right? And, like, as you just described, like, back in the days, it used to really be, like, the Wild Western, where, like, some, like, yeah, like, literally kids were able to take down MySpace because just, like, they found some bugs, right? Yeah. And then this thing was, like, self-replicating. Um, what do we do about
0: this? Well, I mean, it seems like... The most realistic way to to defend against this is that you would expect that the white hat people would have a larger budget than, uh, you know, pranksters or terrorists or just 'er ne'er-do-wells that are doing this. And so they, like, why don't you, why didn't Google train the hacking model first and then use that to detect all the vulnerabilities that this model could possibly find and then patch them all? Uh, Indeed, I think the way that this could have legs is, well, firstly, it might just be that no one's on the ball. And so no one produces this um, ML hacking model for um, benevolent purposes first. So it might be that the bad people have this idea and, and put it into operation uh, before like the necessary security work has been done on the other side. It might also just be that it's easier to, uh, like you might have an offense a, a advantage here where they only have to find one vulnerability or as you have to patch everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if, even if you have a security model that can discover the vulnerabilities, in fact, patching them might be a hell of a lot of work and in many cases. Uh, it's just there aren't enough system operators in the entire uh-huh. world to, to do all of the necessary software updates. <laughs> um, so
1: anyway, it might, it might be a danger during this kind of intermediate stage. Uh, yeah, is there anything you want to want to add to this? Yeah, maybe there are like two different notions we should like try to disentangle here. There's, I think there's one idea of just like you have like the system, like this, this like AI system, which is like self-replicating and going around, right? And the best way to defend against this is just like you train the system idea on an air-gapped server, so systems which are not connected to the internet, and you try to evaluate it there for these dangerous and self-replicating capabilities. And if they have it, well, please don't deploy it. This is the first thing. Um, another notion we can just talk about, like, well, you can use these models as to help your coding, and they help you to produce like, new malware, right? And then we just basically describe, well, it's going from server to server, and it's doing X. Really depends what X is, and how would you, like, eventually detect it. And, like, yeah, like a AI system self-replicating going from place to place to, like, acquire more copies of itself, I think it's a completely... Yeah, something different than just like a malware going around because this is already the case, which we see a lot of times, right? We just expect like to be like these offender capabilities, like these, these script kitty capabilities to something you just become like significantly better in, in the near future to do this. But yeah, like for these AI systems, that's why we need like these capabilities evils. Just like people should like really check, do these systems have the idea on like some ways to self-replicate? And I expect this to not come like immediately from one system to the other, just like we're we're like, cool, maybe certain systems can theoretically do it right you can like basically like talk to them and like get them to do it over time and in the future they might do it on their own but like we will see like some prompts and ways like some signs of this previously where we should like be really careful but this whole idea of having air-gapped servers really helps there i think one of the first things you can do with ai systems you don't understand is deploy them on the internet this seems really really bad the internet is just a wild western and also just defend our critical (laughs) infrastructure against the internet just don't hook everything up to the internet just like it's a bad idea (laughs)
0: I've been just banging my head against walls for the last five years watching everything get connected to the internet. And it's like this is a completely centralized failure node now for everything, for the water, for electricity, for our cars. I think just based on common sense, given how bad computer security is, this has been a foolish move. There, there, yeah. there are benefits, but we've just been completely reckless. I think in, in the way that we've yeah. connected essential services to to the internet. Um, I mean, at least at least so far as I understand it, we haven't connected the nukes to the
1: internet. Uh, but
0: that seems to be almost the only thing that we haven't decided to make vulnerable. Good. Yeah, city. at least we
1: agree on this one. This seems really good. Yeah, <laughs> but like everything else, just like it seems really bad. And I think we have not seen a roast yet because nobody deployed the capabilities yet. But you can expect most nation states to sit in each other's critical infrastructure. If they want to, they can pull the plug. And for some reason, they don't do it like or like not for some reason like it makes sense to not do it but like if they want to do they could pull it and then we then yeah. have AI systems doing this these, this is definitely not great They're like some things which just like simply not be connected to the internet yeah it's like funny enough like as as a technical guy I, like I've always been using being the one who's like please let's not <laughs> hook it up to the internet like this right, whole like, idea of internet of things is like don't get me wrong it seems great it's a lot of fun having like all of this fancy blue lights in your room <laughs> But yeah, oof. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> we're just going to lose all electronics simultaneously in a, in, a, in a worst case scenario where someone sufficiently malicious or a, an agent that's sufficiently malicious yeah. is interested in basically shutting down society. And uh, I mean, people would starve en
1: masse. Uh, would be would, is the outcome of the way that we're setting things up worst, is yeah. that, uh... and we see this right now already with just like companies where like ransomware is like getting deployed, right? Where like just like whole companies are not like we had this in our hospitals, yeah. But like lucky enough, like some ransomware up, yeah. is like, oh, sorry guys, like we were only meant to target like financial corporations, <laughs> not your hospitals. Here, here's the encryption key, but like sorry for taking off your whole network for a month or for a week or something. They're yeah. like, yeah, not defended. Yeah, nobody's on the ball on cybersecurity. I feel pretty confident on on this statement. Some people just way more than others. Yeah, um, but but it just goes hand in hand with AI systems. Yeah. If, if we don't figure <laughs> this one out, yeah, and maybe maybe we should leverage it in the meanwhile to make more systems secure. And if we can't, just let's not hook it up to the internet. That that would be would be a great. <laughs> yeah,
0: thing I, I, in I think unfortunately we've just completely lost on that one. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. They're not hooking up to the internet. There's almost nothing left. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's like um,
1: some critical infrastructure where we just okay. don't do it. Or it's like some way. I feel like yeah, I would expect some power facilities not being hooked up with the internet but maybe i'm just wrong and naive down like yeah maybe too optimistic
0: yeah i think this raises an entire intervention class that i haven't seen discussed very much among ai x risk or ai existential risk folks which is just maybe a very valuable thing to do is to start businesses uh, start a business a computer security business that Uses ML models to find vulnerabilities and alert people and try to get them to patch it, to try to get as much of a lead as you possibly can on just improving computer security in general against mm-hmm. this broad threat of this new way that people can try to identify
1: and uh, take advantage of vulnerabilities. Ideally, yeah. AI labs would do it. Um, right, my, yeah. my colleague Marcus had, had this idea of just like, there needs to be some responsible disclosure. It was like, hey, we're in AI lab. We developed a system. Hello, society. Can, yeah. There are these vulnerabilities. I think the system might be able to exploit it. We can only deploy the system if we patch these vulnerabilities which we know the system can, like, exploit for sure, Otherwise, we should not deploy the system, right? Well, I mean, yeah, Well, so is one model
0: that has better incentives might be that they have to notify people about um, all of these ways that it could harm harm those folks, or that, that their systems are vulnerable to it, and then they say, well, we're going to deploy this in a month, so you've got a month to fix this, or, or you've got six months or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. Ideally, you have more time and yeah. you, you can also say no. It's like, oh, gosh, yeah. like, right, yeah. you guys, like, I mean, you better. Just, <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, yeah, like, still yeah. other people who, like, Eventually, decide. Eventually, it's up to like governments and democracies I mean, to decide what gets deployed.
0: Yeah, I mean, currently, if people don't patch their computers, mostly that harms them because you know maybe maybe their money will be stolen or, or their data is going to be stolen. I don't. But I mean, there's I a harm to society, right? There's just like insurances for these kinds of stuff, and just like well, the, well, the direction I was going was saying like right now, like I, I bear most of the cost. But in this new world where compute can be used for hostile purposes. Uh-huh. It becomes a, a whole societal issue if people aren't patching their servers, or yeah. or people's servers are vulnerable, such that. It may, it may be necessary to have much more serious regulation about uh, saying it's unacceptable to have this like large amounts of compute hooked up to the internet that are vulnerable to to infiltration. Yeah. It's just a threat to
1: all. So I think so. Uh, yeah. I think in general, like one just good policy, which is just like data centers should have certain security norms. Yeah. That it's that simple. And like certain security norms regarding physical access. Yeah. And certain security norms just regarding cyber physical access for these kinds of systems. Yeah. And they have to have the, or like and add a red button. Ideally, ideally, the red button. Uh, we have to be a bit careful there about the design. Again, it's dual use again. Maybe the wrong people see, push yeah. the wrong red, red button, right? Also, point. the AI system could do it. But maybe that's the thing we eventually wanted, where just like this red button is, um, in this case, favorable because they are like less copies or so. Uh, but yeah, this should be more explored and more detail to which degree this is good. But like having some fail-safe switch for these kinds of systems where you see like, oh my God, this AI system is going haywire. Yeah, that'd be good.
0: Yeah. I guess, so 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 one, one thing is just to turn off the system. Uh, another thing that the red button could do or I suppose I don't know is it, I guess it's the yellow button actually the red button it's got the button, yellow right? button yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I think at the moment it probably takes quite a bit of work to basically start up a, an entire like set of compute and to reset it basically back to factory settings or reset it back to some known yeah. safe um, like pre-infection uh, setting and then and then turn it back on again. Maybe that needs to be much more automated so that basically you press this yellow button and the whole thing like goes through some process of like clearing out everything mm-hmm. and uh, basically resetting something from uh, from previous known safe state because. That I mean, that that reduces the cost to doing it because you're not right. denying people access to their email. Yeah, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. But eventually, there's still some cost, right? And like yeah. th- that's the whole idea where we have like this these power supplies and just like these batteries in these data centers. If you run out of power you just you never want your system to shut down because you just lose data, right? So, like, first they run off the battery, and if they still don't get power back by then, they turn on their, their generators to generate their own power. So, like, yeah. <laughs> these things are, like, like right now optimized. to so just, like, always stay up, have, like, their uptime up, right? And, like, we need some innovations there where we can just, like, try to to think about these things. In particular, like, yeah, a bunch of the things we're now talking about, like, are pretty speculative, just, like, well, AI systems, self-replicating, going, going over data center to data center, or even malwares. And I think they're, like, some... This is a fail-safe. There are like so many ter- like a bunch of interventions in between where we could just detect this. And just like monitoring is just the first idea. Just knowing what's going on in your data centers, what's going in and what's going out, and what is using your compute. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we've talked for a
0: while. We should uh, be- begin to head to- towards the final stretch. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about kind of concrete advice for listeners or, uh, I guess, possibly for policymakers or other people who are listening who might be able to contribute to Making better all of the problems that we've been talking <laughs> talking about today. I guess, yeah, what sorts of people or skills do you think are most required to move forward
1: this field of compute governance? For compute governance, we definitely need more technical expertise. Um, I think that's just a big thing. I think that's also like the biggest part where I've been able to contribute just like as somebody who's like, yeah, study this, like computer engineering a bit and just like have some idea how like the stack eventually works. But within compute governance, we have like really technical questions where you can just like, l- yeah, it's like pretty similar to doing a PhD with just like, what do you actually work on important stuff? And then we also have like the whole strategy and policy aspect, which is like maybe more across the stairs. On the technical questions, I think I've, I think we've pointed out a bunch of them <laughs> during this conversation. It's like, here's a bunch of things. What about proof of learning, proof of non-learning? How can we have like certain assurances? Which mechanisms can we apply? How can we make data centers more safe? How can we defend against this? all these cyber things we've just discussed? There's like a whole notion of things you can do there. And also there, there's some questions where we need like computer engineers on. There's some questions which are more like software engineering type. And a bunch of them is like overlap from information security. How can you make these systems safe and secure? Also, if you implement these mechanisms... And I think a bunch of stuff is also just like cryptography, just like people think about these proofs of learning and all the all these aspects there. Like so, so yeah, software engineers, hardware engineers, everybody across the stack feel encouraged to work on this kind of thing. The the general notion which I'm trying to get across like like up a year ago, I think people were not really aware of AI governance. So like a lot of technical folks were like, oh, sh- surely, I'm just going to try to align these systems. I'm like, sure, this seems great. I'm counting on you guys. <laughs> I need you. But there's also this whole AI governance angle and we're just lacking technical talent. This is the case in think tanks. This is the case in governments. This is the case in like the within the labs, within their governance teams. There's just like a deep need for these kinds of people. And they can contribute like a lot, in particular, if you have expertise in these kinds of things you you just always need to, like, figure out, like, okay, what can I contribute? Maybe become a bit agnostic about your field or something. Like, if you've been previously a compiler engineer, sorry, you're not going to, com- like, engineer compilers. That's not going to be the thing. But you learn some things. You, like, you know how you go from software to hardware. You might be able to contribute. I think, for example, a compiler engineer right now and others across the state could just help right now, for example, with chip export controls, like, figuring out better ideas and better strategies there. So, like... Variety of things, but like I'm I'm just all for technical people considering governance. And this is to a large like large extent um, also a personal fit consideration, right? And like if you like more like the people person, sure, go into policy, you're gonna talk to a lot of folks. If you're more like of the researchy person, you wherever wanna be alone, sure, you cannot just do like deep down research there. So you're not gonna solve the Lyme problem itself, but you're gonna invent mechanisms which just like enable us to coordinate and buy us more time, like yeah, to like make this whole AI thing like in a safe and sane way.
0: Yeah. Seems like one thing that stands out is uh, you need technical people but not not just technical people what we, what you're craving is technical plus understands policy technical plus understands law technical plus is a great communicator uh, that that kind of thing. Ideally. Is that
1: yeah. Not all of the combinations at the same time. Okay, right, <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry, yeah, exactly right. And and sometimes just like you just learn it. I mean like I was just like I was just this this tech guy. I, I developed embedded systems and ML deployed them. Like yeah. I didn't have like a lot of exposure to like policy besides me doing like I don't know trying to get involved in politics at some point. Yeah. Um well, you can learn What counts as technical here? Uh, What
0: what, what, what are all of the uh, things that would qualify as that?
1: Um, Yeah, like we can literally go down to the semiconductor supply chain, like somebody who knows how these things are getting manufactured. We need these people to implement export controls because they know how the supply chain works, they know what is critical, they know what's going to be the next big thing in the future where you maybe want to apply export controls, right? So this is like literally somebody working on semiconductor stuff, already useful there, just like trying to understand this. A lot of times you have the problem with engineers that are just like deep down on one thing. Nobody sees the whole thing right that that's that that's because everything is just so hard. you just have this one engineer who like literally works on this one bolt. that's what they do for the, their whole lifetime, and you need somebody who's like able to take a step back and like think about this. One, one question which I like try to ask is like well here here are specifications of a chip, and I'm not telling you just like which one would you pick, where would you set the threshold, and your desired goal is to dampen race dynamics. This is a long chain of like things you need to think about there, and like ideally, you can think through all of the steps. But you're never alone, right? So ideally, join other people, join think tanks so we can all work together. I've been having a blast just working together interdisciplinary. I think everybody's always joking interdisciplinary is like this great thing. Everybody (laughs) wants to do it. Um, and And then you get it in your studies when you work with, I don't know, I did like computer engineering and then I worked with like a, Power engineering person, like, oh, interdisciplinary. No. <laughs> now I'm, like, working with people, like, thinking about treaties, lawyers, mm. everything across the stack. And it's, like, really, really, really great. You don't need always all of them for every type of research, but eventually you all come together. And people, yeah, pick their battles in, like, within there. You can, like, be across the spectrum. You don't need to do all of the things. It's always better if you can do all of the things, but this always comes at, like, some penalty regarding your, your knowledge there, right? And sometimes you just need to keep... Deep technical expertise, but you also need somebody who like who you can tell it to, right? And then translate it. I think a bunch of my work has just been literally translation work. I talk to to you know the people in the basements thinking about like all of the stuff, and then I think about like oh, what does it mean for governance? And then I go to the policy people. It's like oh, I think I think that's what we're gonna do. Um,
0: yeah. What what's needed on the more policy side? I mean, I suppose you need bureaucrats or like people to take interest in this in the civil service uh people to take interest on this in as much as there are uh, you know policy advisors to mm-hmm. ministers or policy advisors to to people running government departments um people people are you know ad- advising uh, folks in congress well, all of that stuff seems quite essential as well
1: all, all these play yeah all these things seem essential i think people should always think about just like which governments matter like the most regarding ai and also which places matter the most regarding ai uh ideally more and more places will matter regarding it, but just more or less, right? If you literally work in the department which is responsible for AI, here we go. This seems good, for example. And in general, just also they are like me with my tech and it's like, yeah, they just need more technical expertise there um, for people to go in there. And they're like, they, they would love to have you. They're just like, they really embrace technical people. And there's just like great ways to upskill on this. There's literally something called Tech Congress Fellowship. And there's just like a way of going about it where like technical people get put into a Congress and like work with people together. A lot of times I think they don't end up staying because just like the other options are just like so nice, right? Compared to like, you know, working at Google, you got your nice working times, you got a nice cafeteria. Just like, yeah, it's like, (laughs) it's hard to work in governments. But this is where it happens. And I would just really encourage people just like, yep, the the impact case is definitely there. If a listener was under 30
0: and wanted to yeah help you and your colleagues out in some way what sort of person should they go off and try to become who might be able to really really move the needle in future are there particular kind of undergrad degrees or uh, any kind of backgrounds that you're going to be excited to hire from in five years
1: time mm. um yeah i've been asked this question a lot i'm just like it depends is probably the answer i i would be excited about people just like yeah understand how ai accelerators work to like a to a good degree like and this is AI mostly done. Ac- ac- accelerators, accelerators, just AI chips, oh, just like okay, right. GPUs, TPUs, like the more broader term for this. Um, and you would probably study electric engineering for this, with a focus on computer engineering. Then you would like do like design, architecture, uh, these kinds of things. Like you probably don't need to understand how you manufacture chips in the detail, right? But also somebody who knows this in detail seems good. But ideally, I want them in in the U.S. government right now, immediately, <laughs> to these kinds of stuff. But like skilling up there seems seems good, and maybe. Maybe another notion is I think it's easier to go from learn technical stuff first and then learn governance stuff than the other way around. So, like, it's probably good to start with a pretty stemmy degree, learn these kinds of things. I think it just in general enables you to, like, think well, just, like, do a bunch of good stuff. Don't get too attached to your specific knowledge. Mostly get attached to, like, the way you think, the way how engineers solve problems. And this is the kinds of transferable skill which I'm excited about. Your specific knowledge might be relevant from some classes, it's hard to say what exactly, but like, yeah, like maybe something like AI accelerator design, understanding the semiconductor supply chain better, but also people who know how to train these systems. For example, I need somebody who's like, well, how big does your cluster need to be? What are the properties you're actually looking there for? Like how many chips? How are they interconnected? How much energy do you need then? These kinds of things are like really, really important, right? Because if I'm not writing policy, those are actually the numbers and then I need. And a lot of times it's really hard to get a, a, a information from the people at the labs. Because there's just like a lot of confidentiality involved. So if somebody's at the labs and just like wants to do governance, yeah, that seems great. <laughs> lots to do. I would love to love to get somebody like this on board.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that was people who were who who were younger. I mean, all of this stuff is so obscenely urgent that I, I feel like this is maybe more a moment of people who are like have relevant expertise already uh-huh. and are over 30 and are like closer to the peak of their career in terms of their influence and their, and their technical capabilities. Yeah. Uh, I was actually lo- looking at the age distribution of listenership uh, to, to the show today. And I think about half are under 30 and, and half are over 30.
1: Oh, here we um, go. So we could really use the over 30 people yeah. so- <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to jump <laughs> into action right now. Uh, yeah, do you want to talk to them? So over 30 people, um, yeah, work on impactful stuff. <laughs> it's a general message, but that's probably not a surprise if you're listening to this podcast. Um, people in technical jobs, be it a software engineer, be it a hardware engineer. Test your fit for your governance. Just start reading and see what needs to be done there and pick open questions. I'm just hoping in the near future we will just like a large degree what I'm trying to do is like put open questions out there so people can work on it. I don't know, like, I don't know, two months after this release of this episode, hold me accountable if I have not published my <laughs> questions yet. Like, let's use this as a forcing function for like some people who's like, hey, here, here are the questions which you might be want to work on. And then I think a great way to just go about it is like test it with fellowships. Maybe try to take a sabbatical, maybe a longer vacation. Try to test your fit, right? You just you should do something you eventually enjoy. And then think, do you want to go to governments? Maybe you want to do like some kind of placement in a think tank. Maybe you want to do some placement in Congress and Senate. Along these lines, there are like great opportunities out there to do this. And if you don't like it, then then you go back. But I'm definitely promising you people will, yeah, they will just like, Welcome you with open arms with any type of technical knowledge on these kinds of things, particularly right now. Another way to test the fit is to like join us, go for like three months. We run like summer and winter fellowships, and the yeah, the goal is to just like have people just like upskill on AI governance. Then we can work together on projects, and I exchange technical knowledge with governance knowledge. And like if we work together, we can probably do something good there. Yeah. I guess the
0: yeah the, the challenge for people post thirty uh, and I guess especially maybe post forty is uh, they've already made commitments in terms of what they're what they're trained in. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you, you you know you're a lawyer and you're fifty, you're probably not going to go back and do an undergrad degree in in, in, in computer science. I guess a benefit here is that it seems like the surface area is very large. There are many different skills that are relevant, and there's going yeah. to be many different actors working on this. It, it, it feels like AI is a rocket ship, and AI governance is therefore also going to be right. a, a rocket ship, basically. Yeah. So that I would expect a lot of roles in. Government uh policy in in the labs so coming up that are relevant to this, and I suppose yeah, the technical side is is particularly useful uh, thing to have, but but so potentially is, is legal or like legislative. Absolutely, yeah. yeah,
1: like yeah. Don't get me wrong, if I'm like not overemphasizing like technical stuff, this is just like where I'm coming from, where I'm thinking like I want to make a dent. But in general, yeah, governance can absorb all kinds of talents. Technical AI safety is a bit harder there, right? Just like it's really hard to get started on this if you don't have like the relevant background knowledge, but. My claim is whatever your background is, there's probably yeah. something useful to do yeah. within AI governance. I mean, so
0: economist as well. I imagine they're going oh, to be yeah. relevant all over the place here. Absolutely. Uh, thinking of my background, yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, do you have any other suggestions for people
0: who are inspired to take action based on, on this conversation? Okay, so we were we didn't talk about computer security
1: there, which is a whole other thread that is like adjacent ge- yeah. adjacent to this. Yeah. Information security, computer security, big thing. Please work on this. I think recently there was actually published a career review on this. Mm, um, yeah. So this seems to be a great thing to take a look at and work on this. And there are like more people trying to do this. Work at the labs. Once we got the lab secure, we also need to secure people like me and others because we also work with more and more confidential information. That seems important. And yeah, make, make, <laughs> make the computer secure, make the lab secure, and also make the AI governance people secure. Yeah. Which other things would like to say? I think when, when I got started, I didn't work on compute, but I had a hardware background. I was like, oh, AI seems like a big deal. Well, this technical stuff seems really, really hard. I don't know how to contribute. I'm a hardware engineer. All I can do is build better AI chips. That seems bad. And then I kind of dropped it. And at some point, I was like, I would discover like, wait, like, wait, like, computing is really important as an input to these AI systems, right? So maybe, maybe just understanding this seems useful for understanding the development of AI. And I really saw nobody working on this. I was like, huh, guess, I guess I must be wrong. You know, if nobody's working on this, all these smart people, like, they're on the ball. They're like, they, they got it, right? But no, they're not. <laughs> if you don't see something covered, my call is like, Cool. Maybe it's actually not that impactful. Maybe it's not a good idea, but whatever. Try to push it, get feedback, put it out there, talk to people and see if this is a useful thing to do. Like you should in general expect there are like more unsolved problems than solved problems, particularly in such a young field and where we just need so many people to work on this. So, yeah, I encourage everyone just like if you have some ideas like how your niche can contribute or like a certain things where you don't think it's impactful. Yeah, just because we haven't covered it yet. Does not mean it's not it's not a good thing to go for. So like I encourage you like to try it and like put it out there. This has definitely been my path. I'm just like, nobody's working on this, seems important. And then I just went around. I was like, hey, why is nobody working on this? And I was like, oh yeah, do you want to work on this? Like, oh yeah, sure, cool. And and now I've been doing this and like trying to like get more people involved in these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting that you have this perception that it's probably covered because
0: I mean a couple of years ago, the entire field of people concerned about AI governance was really small. I guess especially from this thinking somewhat longer term yeah. point of view. We're talking about, at best, dozens of people. Right, and it's yeah, like, yeah, I mean, you know, what are the odds that just none of those 30 people had a background in compute specifically <laughs> and also had the, like, energy and entrepreneurialism to start
1: a whole new thing, a yeah. whole new research agenda? I, of course, it's unlikely. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I, like, I didn't just think that well about it, I guess. I'm just like, yeah, what should have been my prior there? But maybe it's just something like, at least somebody should have written it down as an open question. Or like yeah. said it or something like, you know, like I just didn't find anything. You just Googled AI and computer like not a lot. Right. And at some point, I put out the blog post, like I just saw like this exponential line going up, like uh, exponential lines going up. They're, I don't know. So we should think about this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and guess, just change it. Yeah.
0: I guess to look at it from a slightly other point of view, there probably were a lot of people in government, broadly speaking, thinking about, like, I imagine that the the groundwork required for these export restrictions on chips Mm -hmm. probably began many years earlier. And it was something that would have germinated in someone's mind in Mm -hmm. in the policy or national security space a long time before. So from from that point of view, there probably were quite a lot of people thinking about this on some level. I think it's just, if you're in government, if you're in an agency trying to write legislation, if you're at RAND or whatever, trying to come up with a policy proposal here, it's quite challenging for those folks, I think, to think many, like five, 10, 15 years ahead. They're often, uh, it feels like that group is often very focused on problems today and problems next yeah. year, uh, stuff that people are talking about right now. And so you can find a lot more things being neglected if you're thinking, well, what are the issues going to be in five years' time, which is kind of where you are able to, to grasp that. Indeed. Whereas someone who's currently in Congress just doesn't have the leisure for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think there's like just like a bunch of misconceptions you have when you're like relatively young, It's like, Osh, like yeah, it seems like nobody's doing this. I think another problem, yeah, governance we just have, there's just like a bunch of work which is like not publicly available or something. It's just like it's in people's mind and like in particular right now, I think we would just see less We've seen more open work, but also less open work because it's just, people are busy. Like, they just don't right. put ideas out there, but they have thought about it. And, like, they didn't take deep into this. Like, when I then learned about it, it's like, oh, people looked into compute before, but nobody ever finished any projects there because they, like, kind of got stuck or they got drawn into government and immediately worked on it. And then they stopped, like, communicating with the outside world, right? Yeah. Um. In particular, if it's, like, yeah, sensitive topics like this.
0: Yeah. Another thing that has occurred to me recently, I, I guess as I'm getting older and I'm like no longer feeling like I'm early in my career, I'm realizing that a mechanism by which really important stuff gets neglected, especially like I guess when I was 20, I was like, why aren't people who are 50 like working on problem X, Y, and Z? And uh-huh. it's like, they're busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they made commit like thirty years ago. They were at your stage, and they like saw what stuff was coming up and what they thought was really important. And then they've been working on it since then, developing expertise. And now they're flat out trying to like solve the problems that they've specialized in solving. But now they don't have the time to just be scoping out issues that aren't a problem yet, or or speculating about what other issues there might be. So that's. They're not stupid. Yeah, they're, they're, no, they're, it's just yeah, it's just that this is kind of the system that, to some extent, you need young people to be doing this while they are in undergrad. Yeah. I mean, not completely. Obviously, there are <laughs> obviously that there are mechanisms by which older people uh, like notice stuff that's up uh, up and coming. But you know, when you're 20, you have a particular opportunity here to mm-hmm. guess what is going to be important in future. That is very difficult for like the current director of an yeah. agency to be doing, because uh, it's it's very hard to be both implementing current necessary functions while also anticipating Thinking. what's coming up
1: in yeah. a, a long time in the future absolutely i think this is like the thing which is like changed over last month so I me. Mean, it was like off like when when was the last time i did think like big thing picture questions what do i need 10 years from now compared to just like reacting a lot of times you're just reacting putting out fires every now and then i think yeah. it's just becoming more worse over time and then the general just like way just like yeah the more you progress in your career you become more busy and it just becomes harder to make time for these kinds of things and, like, cover everything. As I just said, like, me writing up all of these research questions, I got them yeah. all in my head, right? Like, I can, like, say yes or no, but just, like, actually taking time to just write them up and put them out there. Oof, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, we're getting to the point where, like, we've committed to understanding and specializing in particular topics, and we're probably no longer alert to what stuff is going to be important in 10 years' yeah. time. Uh, that's something that other
1: people... Who haven't yet necessarily yeah. got full time jobs? Uh, we, we need you to do that, <laughs> <This is laughs> and part- then we'll interview you in ten years time. Yeah, this is part why Goffey is a policy team, which I'm part of. So like, I'm committing to like work on the stuff right now and like try to have big think, uh, like the big picture in my head of my mind. But like, other of my colleagues are just like, okay, cool. I'm I'm thinking what's like next in the future or something. Like, take a step back, right? You want a portfolio of people who do it. Exactly. And Of course, it's always hard to just say like. <laughs> I cannot decide the portfolio of the world on this right now, right? And I think like I think right now a lot of people feel drawn to just like act right now and act on policy. I think this might be true for a bunch of people, maybe not for everyone, right? Like maybe the things people have done before was also useful. And maybe maybe we just like work on all the stuff right now and then like there is the next opportunity window in five years from now we're just like, damn. Nobody nobody saw this coming, right? Like like people should always think like what's the next big thing or something. I think my claim is when people thought open AI is a big deal, they should have also thought at the same time that compute is a big deal because they, like, they're like they just like pretty openly bought into the scaling hypothesis. So if you think OpenAI might be a big deal in the future, at the same time, somebody should have figured out compute governance, right? But like, again, lack of talent, lack of expertise for these kinds of things. And this is eventually why it just didn't happen, right? Yeah, well, I
0: mean, I guess... People told me six or eight years ago, compute's going to be a massive deal, like compute's, <laughs> computes key. from an bought NVIDIA. View, and I bought NVIDIA, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I got, I got looked into it. But the issue is yeah. the people who had the expertise to notice that didn't necessarily have the expertise to take action on it. Because they're not experts in compute. <laughs> yeah, uh, those were people. They were closer to being experts in algorithms. Right. Who noticed that? Because uh, they're next to it. That uh, yeah. the computer was going to be a big, a really big deal. Yeah, yeah I don't know. we uh, <laughs> with all kinds of strange stuff because of because of the finitude of, of the human mind and the need saying to specialize.
1: It, and just sometimes, just also need to drag people to it, right? I'm mean, I having an easy time saying was like, well, maybe like maybe there were like some arguments out there, but like then it's not like clear where like a technical person should go, right? Like, well, you don't do technical alignment, you don't really do governance. Like, what is the place to be there now right to like think about these things then you have the hard time like if you try to think about a new field there are not that many places where you can do it like this does not really fit into academia for the international relations people i'm just like too technical for the technical people i'm too political so there are not that many places where this kind of research eventually can happen right so i'm like i'm yeah i'm also just like really lucky being at a place where i can just like think about these things and like trying to make it a bigger thing that also like no mainstream think tanks try to think about this as a, as a field as a domain to work on
0: yeah all right. Final question. Uh, life's coming at us pretty fast. Uh, it can be a little bit stressful. Uh I imagine it's, it's stressful for me thinking about this all the time, and I imagine uh, sometimes it gets you down as well. Oh yeah. What do you do to feel better and unwind?
1: Um, I I don't know. I'm a big fan of nature. Just like going hiking, being out there. I don't know. I live I live most of the time in Zurich, which is a beautiful place. to so just like you know, go swimming, go down the river with a boat. Listening to good music, I think that's what I'm doing. Oh, and I'm like actively now trying to look for people where I don't need to talk about AI. Okay. So like I'm like actively <laughs> trying to make this commitment. I was like, folks, okay, no AI talk, please. Because now it's mainstream. Now everybody wants to talk yeah, about yeah, it, right? Yeah, so, like, yeah, I'm just yeah. like oh, i oh, have been doing this all day. Shut up, mom! I don't <laughs> yeah, want to yeah. You <laughs> they know, like yeah, like your favorite band suddenly becomes cool, and it's like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and the, the the other thing is just like yeah, just we like to be nature. I was a lucky kid who grew up with a bunch of bunch of huskies. My dad had this weird hobby where we just had twenty twenty sled dogs. There was not a lot of snow in that every single time, but like you know, sometimes every now and then we had snow. Always we had like a trike where I was just like sitting in front. Of we were going out with the dogs. So I think it's a still big thing for me to unwind and just like. Also, just a plan Z. I think mm. plan Z is just like literally just go to <laughs> Alaska, Canada, get my 20 dogs, and just like, yep, that's it. N- hooking nothing up to the internet, you know, just, just to be safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just me, me and my dogs and a bunch of people. That'd be great. So, like, I think this is like still, which really grounds me. And, and just like all the other to something all the other problems in the world like yeah AI is a big thing but like oh come on like, it's kind of ridiculous what we're claiming here right what we're just all talking about so sometimes just like gosh how did I get here I started with saving the whales and now I'm, now I'm working on AI <laughs> governance it's been it's been a weird bumpy road <laughs> yeah it's enough to make you wonder whether you're living in a simulation
2: <laughs>
1: my guest today has
0: been Leonard Heim. Uh thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 hours podcast Leonard <laughs> thanks for having me Hey everyone, uh, I hope you enjoyed that interview. In the conversation, we talked a bunch about the importance of information and computer security and how that might be really, uh, really critical in the development of extremely powerful artificial intelligence uh, systems. And not so completely coincidentally, uh, 80,000 Hours recently published a new and updated career review on information security in high impact areas as a career choice that one might make in order to try to do a lot of good. That article received a big update from author Jarrah Bloomfield. You can find that article on our website, of course, by just searching for 80,000 hours and information security. But I thought given its pertinence to this interview, uh, it might be good to do an article reading and throw it on the end here. So I'll have some final announcements in the outro before this all finishes. But before that, for your enjoyment, here is an article reading on information in high-impact careers by Jarrah Bloomfield.
2: Published in December 2022 and last updated June 5, 2023. Heading Introduction As the 2016 US presidential campaign was entering a fractious round of primaries, Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, John Podesta, opened a disturbing email. The March 19 message warned that his Gmail password had been compromised and that he urgently needed to change it. The email was a lie, it wasn't trying to help him protect his account it was a phishing attack trying to gain illicit access. Podesta was suspicious, but the campaign's IT team erroneously wrote that the email was legitimate, in quotes, and told him to change his password. The IT team provided a safe link for Podesta to use, but it seems he or one of his staffers instead clicked the link in the forged email. That link was used by Russian intelligence hackers known as Fancy Bear, and they used their access to leak private campaign emails for public consumption in the final weeks of the 2016 race, embarrassing the Clinton team. While there are plausibly many critical factors in any close election, it's possible that the controversy around the leaked emails played a non-trivial role in Clinton's subsequent loss to Donald Trump. This would mean the failure of the campaign's security team to prevent the hack, which might have come down to a mere typo, legitimate versus illegitimate, was extraordinarily consequential. These events vividly illustrate how careers in info security at key organisations have the potential for outsized impact. Ideally, security professionals can develop robust practices that reduce the likelihood that a single slip-up will result in a significant breach. But this key component for the continued and unimpaired functioning of important organisations is often neglected. And the need for such protection stretches far beyond hackers trying to cause chaos in an election season. Information security is vital to safeguard all kinds of critical organisations, such as those storing extremely sensitive data about biological threats, nuclear weapons, or advanced artificial intelligence that might be targeted by criminal hackers or aggressive nation-states. Such attacks, if successful, could contribute to dangerous competitive dynamics, such as arms races, or directly lead to catastrophe. Some infosecurity roles involve managing and coordinating organisational policy, working on technical aspects of security, or a combination of both. We believe many such roles have thus far been underrated among those interested in effective altruism and reducing global catastrophic risks. And we'd be excited to see more altruistically motivated candidates move into this field. In a nutshell, organisations with influence, financial power and advanced technology are targeted by actors seeking to steal or abuse these assets. A career in information security is a promising avenue to support high-impact organisations by protecting against these attacks, which have the potential to disrupt an organization's mission or even increase existential risk. 80,000 Hours classifies this career path as recommended, if you are well-suited to this career, it may be the best way for you to have a social impact. And the review status is based on a medium-depth investigation. The review is informed by people with expertise about this path, an understanding of the best existing advice, and an in-depth investigation into at least one of our key uncertainties concerning this path. Some of our views will be thoroughly researched, though it's likely there remain some gaps in our understanding. Jeffrey Laddish contributed to this career review. We also thank Vim van der Schutt for his helpful comments. Heading Why might information security be a high-impact career? Information security protects against events that hamper an organization's ability to fulfill its mission, such as attackers gaining access to confidential information. Information security specialists play a vital role in supporting the mission of organizations, similar to roles in operations. So if you want an impactful career, expertise in information security could enable you to make a significant positive difference in the world by helping important organizations and institutions be secure and successful. Compared to other roles in technology, an information security career can be a safe option, because there may be less risk that you could have a negative impact. In general, preventing attacks makes the world a safer place, even if it's not clear whether potential victim organisations are providing net positive impacts themselves. When a company is hacked, the harm can disproportionately fall on others, such as people who trusted the company with their private information. On the other hand, information security roles can sometimes have limited impact, even when supporting high-impact areas if the organisation does not genuinely value security. Many organisations have security functions primarily so that they can comply with regulations and compliance standards for doing business. These security standards have an important role, but when they're applied without care for achieving real security outcomes, it often leads to security theatre. It is not uncommon for security professionals to realise that they are having minimal impact on the security posture of their organisation. Subheading. Protecting organisations working on the world's most pressing problems. Organizations working on pressing problems need cybersecurity expertise to protect their computer systems, financial resources, and confidential information from attack. In some ways, these challenges are similar to those faced by any other organization. However, organizations working on major global problems are sometimes special targets for attacks. These organizations, such as those trying to monitor dangerous pathogens or coordinate to reduce global tensions, often work with international institutions, local political authorities, and governments. They may be targeted by state-sponsored attacks from countries with relevant geopolitical interests, either to steal information or to gain access to other high-value targets. Some high-impact organizations have confidential sensitive discussions as part of their work, where a leak of information through a security compromise would damage trust and their ability to fulfill their mission. This is especially relevant when operating in countries with information control and censorship regimes. In addition to threats from state-sponsored attackers, cybercrime groups also raise serious risks. They seek financial gain through extortion and fraud, for example by changing payment information, ransoming data, or threatening to leak confidential correspondence. Any organisation is vulnerable to these attacks, but organisations that handle particularly sensitive information or large-value financial transactions, such as philanthropic grant-making funds, are especially likely targets. In extreme cases, some organisations need help protecting information that could be harmful for the world if it were known more widely such as harmful genetic sequences or powerful AI technology. Subheading, the security of advanced AI systems. While we think information security work can be valuable at many high-impact organisations, securing the most advanced AI systems may be among the highest impact work you could do. We currently rank risks from artificial intelligence as the most pressing world problem, because of the potential for future systems to cause catastrophes on a global scale. And to reduce the risk of an AI-related catastrophe we've recommended some people work in the field of AI safety. But even if companies developing AI models use them responsibly and in accordance with high standards of safety, these efforts could be undermined if an outside actor steals the technology, then deploys it irresponsibly. And because advanced AI models are expected to be powerful and extremely economically valuable, there are actors with both an interest in stealing them and a history of launching successful cyber attacks to steal technology. And you can check out a link here with more details about that. Because information security is a highly sought-after skill, some AI-related organisations have found it difficult to hire for these crucial roles. There could also be special demand for people who understand the particular information security challenges related to AI. Working on this topic could have a high impact and make you a desirable job candidate. Heading. What does working in high-impact information security roles actually look like? Defensive cybersecurity roles, where the main job is to defend against attacks by outsiders, are most commonly in demand, especially in smaller non-profit organizations and altruistically minded startups that don't have the resources to hire more than a single security specialist. In some of these roles, you'll find yourself doing a mix of hands-on technical work and communicating security risk. For example, you will apply an understanding of how hackers work and how to stop them. You will set up security systems, review IT configurations and provide advice to the team about how to do their work securely and you will test for bugs and vulnerabilities and design systems and policies that are robust to a range of possible attacks. Having security knowledge across a wide range of organizational IT topics will help you be most useful, such as laptop security, cloud administration, application security, and IT accounts, often called identity and access management. You can have an outsized impact relative to another potential hire by working for a high impact organization where you understand their cause area. This is because information security can be challenging for organizations that are focused on social impact, as industry-standard cybersecurity advice is built to support profit motives and regulatory frameworks. Tailoring cybersecurity to how an organization is trying to achieve its mission, and to prevent the harmful events the organization cares most about, could greatly increase your effectiveness. If you're interested in reducing existential risks, we think you should consider joining an organization working in relevant areas, such as artificial intelligence, as discussed above, or biorisk. risk An important part of this is bringing your team along for the journey. To do security well, you will regularly be asking people to change the way they work, likely adding hurdles, so being an effective communicator can be as important as understanding the technical details. Helping everyone understand why certain security measures matter and how you're balancing the costs and benefits is required for the team to accept additional effort or seemingly unnecessary steps. Ethical hacking roles, in which you're tasked with breaking the defences of your clients or employers in order to ultimately improve them are also important for cybersecurity, but only very large organizations have positions for these sorts of offensive or red-teaming, in quotes, roles. More often, such roles are at cybersecurity services companies, which are paid to do short-term penetration testing exercises for clients. If you take such a role, it would be hard to focus on the security of impactful organizations in order to maximize your impact, because you often have little choice about which clients you're supporting. But you could potentially build career capital in these kinds of positions before moving on to more impactful jobs. Heading What kind of salaries do cybersecurity professionals earn? Professionals in information security roles such as cybersecurity earn high salaries. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that the median salary for information security analysts was over $100,000 a year in 2021. In some key roles, such as those at top AI labs or major companies, the right candidates can make as much as $500,000 a year or more. While you'll likely have a bigger impact supporting an organisation directly if the organisation is doing particularly important work, earning to give can still be a high-impact option, especially when you focus on donating to the most effective projects that could use the extra funds. Heading How to assess your fit in advance A great way to gauge your fit for information security is to try it out. There are many free online resources that will give you hands on experience with technical aspects of security. You can get a basic introduction through the SANS Cyber ACES course, which is linked here. Some other ideas to get you started? Audio note this is a series of suggestions which contain many links. You can check out these links in the original post. First idea try out ethical hacking to understand how hacks work and gain an intuition for security loopholes. Find a tutorial on basic attacks, for example, Over the Wire or Hack the Box. Or a course, for example, Coursera's Ethical Hacking Essentials. Read up on high-profile vulnerabilities and see if there are any guides on setting up a lab environment and exploiting them. For example, Log4Shell. If you're studying at a university, it may be easy to join a Capture the Flag team or a CTF team. Next idea, play around with security tools. Wireshark will inspect the surprising variety of network traffic on your computer, and Burp Suite Community can go deeper into web requests. Scan your home network for vulnerabilities with Nessus Essentials. The third and final idea here, set up your own infrastructure. Host a virtual machine, build a web server and secure it. Try installing Elastic Stack and Zeek. Get the AWS free tier and poke around the cloud administrator settings. Having a knack for figuring out how computer systems work or enjoying deploying a security mindset are predictors that you might be a good fit, but they're not required to get started in information security. Heading, how to enter info security. Entering with a degree. The traditional way to enter this field is to study an IT discipline, such as computer science, software engineering, computer engineering, or a related field, in a university that has a good range of cybersecurity courses. However, you shouldn't think of this as a prerequisite. There are many successful security practitioners without a formal degree. A degree often makes it easier to get entry-level jobs, though, because many organizations still require it. Aside from cybersecurity-labeled courses, a good grasp of the fundamentals of computer systems is useful. This includes topics on computer networks, operating systems, and the basics of how computer hardware works. We suggest you consider at least one course in machine learning. While it's difficult to predict technology changes, it's plausible that AI technologies will dramatically change the security landscape. Consider finding a part-time job in an IT area while studying – see the next section – or doing an internship. This doesn't need to be in an information security capacity, it can just be a role where you get to see firsthand how IT works. What you learn in university and what happens in practice are different, and understanding how IT is applied in the real world is vital. In the final year of your degree, look for entry-level cybersecurity positions, or other IT positions, if you need to. We think that jobs in cybersecurity defensive roles are ideal for gaining the broad range of skills that are most likely to be relevant to high-impact organizations. These have role titles such as security analyst, security operations, IT security officer, security engineer or even application security engineer. Offensive roles, such as penetration testing, can also provide valuable experience, but you may not get as broad an overview across all the fronts relevant to enterprise security, or experience the challenges with implementation firsthand. Entering with just IT experience It is also possible to enter this field without a degree. If you have a good working knowledge of IT or coding skills, a common path is to start in a junior role in internal IT support or similar service desk or help desk positions, or software role. Many people working in cybersecurity today transition from other roles in IT. This can work well if you're especially interested in computers and are motivated to tinker with computer systems in your own time. A lot of what you'll learn in an organizational IT role will be useful for cybersecurity roles. Solid IT management requires day-to-day security, and understanding how the systems work and the challenges caused by security features is important if you're going to be effective in cybersecurity. Do you need certifications? There are many cybersecurity certifications you can get. They aren't mandatory, but having one may help you get into an entry-level job, especially if you don't have a degree. The usefulness varies depending on how reputable the provider is, and the training and exams may be expensive. Some well-regarded certifications are CompTIA Security Plus, GIAC Security Essentials, OSCP Penetration Testing, and Certified Ethical Hacker. There are links to all of those here in the article. Vendor and technology certifications, for example, Microsoft or AWS, generally aren't valuable unless they're specific to a job you're pursuing. Heading, what sorts of places should you work? For your first few years, we recommend prioritising finding a role that will grow your knowledge and capability quickly. Some high-impact organisations are quite small, so they may not be well placed to train you up early in your career, because they'll likely have less capacity for mentorship in a range of technical areas. Find a job where you can learn good IT or cybersecurity management from others. The best places to work will already have relatively good security management practices and organisational maturity, so that you can see what things are supposed to look like. You may also get a sense of the barriers that prevent organisations from having ideal security practices. Being able to ask questions from seasoned professionals and figure out what is actually feasible helps you learn more quickly than running up against all the roadblocks yourself. Tech companies and financial organisations have a stronger reputation for cybersecurity. Security specialist organisations, such as in consulting, managed security providers or security software companies, can also be great places to learn. Government organisations specialising in cybersecurity can provide valuable experience that is hard to get outside of specific roles. Once you're skilled up, the main thing to look for is a place that is doing important work. This might be a government agency, a nonprofit, or even a for-profit, We list some high-impact organizations at a link here in the original article. Information security is a support function needed by all organizations to different degrees. How positive your impact is will depend a lot on whether you're protecting an organization that does important and pressing work. Below, we discuss specific areas where we think additional people could do the most impactful work. The first area is safeguarding information hazards. Protecting information that could be damaging for the world if it was stolen may be especially impactful and could help decrease existential risk. Some information could increase the risk that humanity becomes extinct if it were leaked. Organisations focused on reducing this risk may need to create or use this information as part of their work. So working on their security means you can have a directly positive impact. Examples include AI research labs, as discussed above, which may discover technologies that could harm humanity in the wrong hands. Bio-risk researchers who work on sensitive materials, such as harmful genetic sequences that could be used to engineer pandemics or research and grant-making foundations that have access to sensitive information on the strategies and results of existential risk-reduction organisations. The next area? Contributing to safe AI. Security skills are relevant for preventing an AI-related catastrophe. Security professionals can bring a security mindset and technical skills that can mitigate the risk of an advanced AI leading to disaster. If advanced AI ends up radically transforming the global economy, as some believe it might, the security landscape and nature of threats discussed in this article could change in unexpected ways. Understanding the cutting-edge uses of AI by both malicious hackers and infosecurity professionals could allow you to have a large impact by helping ensure the world is protected from major catastrophic threats. And the final area listed here, working in governments. Governments also hold information that could negatively impact geopolitical stability if stolen, such as weapons technology and diplomatic secrets. But it may be more difficult to have a positive impact through this path working in government, as established bureaucracies are often resistant to change, and this resistance may prevent you from having impact. That said, the scale of government also means that if you are able to make a positive change in impactful areas, it has the potential for far-reaching effects. People working in this area should regularly reassess whether their work is, or is on a good path to, making a meaningful difference. There may be better opportunities inside or outside government. You may have a positive impact by working in cybersecurity for your country's national security agencies, either as a direct employee or as a government contractor. In addition, these roles may give you the experience and professional contacts needed to work effectively in national cybersecurity policy. If you have the opportunity, working to set and enforce sensible cybersecurity policy could be highly impactful. Heading. Want one-on-one advice on pursuing this path? If you think this path might be a great option for you, but you need help deciding or thinking about what to do next, our team might be able to help. We can help you compare options, make connections, and possibly even help you find jobs or funding opportunities. Learn more about our free one-on-one advising service at 80,000hours.org. That's the end of the main text. There's an extensive list of recommended podcasts, articles, and books in the Learn More section at the end of the article online. This was an audio version of Information Security in High-Impact Areas by Jarrah Bloomfield, published in December 2022 and last updated June 5th, 2023. This reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Pipe3 Audio. Two notices before we go.
0: Would you like to write reviews of these interviews that Kieran, Louisa and I actually read? Well, by listening to the end of this interview, you've inadvertently qualified to join our podcast advisory group. You can join super easily by going to atk.link slash pod and just putting in your email there. We'll then email you a form to score each episode of the show on various different criteria, and you can tell us what you liked and didn't like about each one. Those forms usually go out uh, just a couple of days after each episode is launched. The reviews really do influence the direction that we decide to take the show. Uh, it, can, it can change who we decide to talk to, the topics that we prioritize with guests, and, and so on. We particularly appreciate people who can give feedback on a majority of episodes because that makes you know, uh, selection effects among reviewers uh, less severe and makes the advice a bit more useful and reliable. So if you'd like to give us a piece of your mind while helping out the show, head to atk.link pod and throw us your email. Also, just a reminder that if that interview has not exhausted you and you'd like more AI content from us, we've put together that compilation of 11 interviews from the show on the topic of AI, including how it works, ways it could be really useful, ways it could go wrong, and ways to make the former more likely than the latter. It should show up in any podcasting app if you search for 80,000 Hours and Artificial. So if you'd like to see the 11 that we chose, just search for 80,000 Hours Artificial in the app that you use to listen to podcasts. You can also find it on the website at 80,000hours.org under the podcast menu at the top there. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Myla McGuire, Dominic Armstrong and Ben Cordell full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.